Comic Geek Speak, episode 1574. Spotlight on Doctor Strange. I'm Adam Murdo, and I'm Chris Eberly. And welcome once again, my friends, to the inner sanctum of Comic <laughs> Geek Speak. As we sit here, we too, yes, the duarchy of uh, of dorkdom. <laughs> as <laughs> well put, my friend. Well put. <laughs> yes, as we prepare to share our arcane knowledge with all of you on a subject that's uh, trending pretty heavily nowadays. Sure is. Where all of uh, comics fandom hotly anticipates the upcoming Doctor Strange movie starring Benedict Cumberbatch. So we've decided to give a, a quickie, done-in-one uh, spotlight treatment to Marvel's own master of the mystic arts, Doctor Strange. Indeed. And uh, you just get the two of us for this, I'm afraid, but we're hunkering down here around our orb of Agamotto and... Uh, Hopefully our insights are going to be sufficient for all of y'all. This is We've proven before that uh, Comic Geek Speak can handle just a two-host format. Absolutely. Goodness knows Peter and I have done our share of those in the past. I'm sure Chris and I are going to... Murd, I am honored that we are doing this side-by-side. As I've said before, if I ever had to go into battle and I needed ammunition, you're the man I would count on. <laughs> I could so. be your shield mate. <laughs> <laughs> all right, but first... We must uh, pay our homage to our uh, mystic sponsors yes, here. Yes, And uh, for this episode, that will be SuperheroStuff.com, where one may go for all of one's Superhero Stuff! stuff. <laughs> so much easier when we're actually in the room when we do that. Yep, everything from the flames of Faltine to your cloak of levitation. <laughs> they've got anything you need to decorate your own sanctum sanctorum. Um, yeah, their special uh, for this month at SuperheroStuff.com is a, a Halloween clearance sale. They've got all kinds of uh, superhero and otherwise geeky costumes uh, on offer in a variety of sizes um, and at uh, a bit of a discount. Um, in addition, there's a lingering 15% off your entire order promotion uh, if you go there and use the code AUTUMN15. Um, uh, they're, they're still offering uh, hero boxes, which is an assortment of... Uh, Superhero items uh, based around certain characters. I've, they're uh, touting the Punisher, Iron Man, and Hulk boxes on their site right now. And uh, they're even offering a free shirt with orders of $60 or more. Um, so, yeah, there's uh, their front page is showing tons of uh, different costumes, uh, mainly for the little ones, but uh, for adults too. And I'm seeing uh, uh, for the members of the Carol Corps out there, there's uh, the Cap- the, the uh, Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel symbol, women's T-shirt, and even a skater dress with the old uh, Ms. Marvel logo on it. So, yeah, quite the variety of stuff happening there at uh, SuperheroStuff.com. Uh, so, uh, if you're um, feeling the need to uh, feather your nest with a few other superhero tchotchkes or expand your uh, uh, your wardrobe with some superhero-related clothing, uh, that's the first place uh, we would ask that you check. Uh, SuperheroStuff.com, where you can go for all of your... Superhero stuff. stuff. All right, now then, since we've we've now pledged our our fealty to the Vishanti, let's uh, move along. Indeed, and begin our discussion of Doctor Strange. Now, uh, faithful listeners, thanks again for joining us. Uh, 
It's been a while since we've done a spotlight, so I'm thrilled to be here actually in the studio. It's been a couple of months, mm-hmm. Mert, yeah. since I've actually been in the studio yeah, physically. For the, for the both of us, yeah. That's right. Um, you know, Mert and I are both uh, – well, I'm always living in New Jersey, and Mert, of course, is in the, the – Tour of duty at Stone Harbor, mm-hmm. I should say. Out of phase between dimensions, yes. you might say. Just waiting for the correct uh, spheric alignment for me to <laughs> return here permanently. But in the meantime, the best I can do is uh, spirit myself here once every few weeks. He is actually projected here, ladies and gentlemen. I can vouch for that. And, uh, you know, for spotlights, I always like to do them in the studio. It just makes it easier in terms of interaction and discussion and so forth. So we're, I'm thrilled that we're both here. And uh, we're actually doing... a. Uh, Two spotlights this evening, but the one we'll be focusing on right now for this episode, of course, is Dr. Stephen Strange, the master uh, of the mystic arts. And as Adam mentioned uh, in our introduction, uh, we have a film coming out uh, next year, 2016. And for me, perfect casting, Benedict Cumberbatch as Dr. Stephen Strange. So, you know, that gives that further galvanizes uh, this spotlight. And uh, as with all of our spotlights, we'll be talking tonight about uh, our personal feelings on the character, our first experiences with the character, uh, discussing the character's place in history, his origins, uh, you know, sort of his, uh, his uh, don't say, what do you say when, it, when you're looking at someone's uh, history in books? Now, obviously not discography or filmography, it's uh, bibliography? I guess bibliography, yeah, mm-hmm. of the character, uh, key appearances, key runs, and uh, we'll also be spending some time focusing particularly on Dr. Strange, The Oath, by uh, mm. Brian K. Vaughan. Uh, yes. Which, uh, something of a mini book of the month on that, actually, yes. since, since Chris was kind enough to provide me with uh, a copy of this uh, out-of-print trade yes. of this uh, admittedly excellent miniseries. And the reason why I wanted to focus on it is because for the forthcoming uh, Halloween Fest, which comic shops, many will participate in, including Wild Pig Comics at 14 South Michigan Avenue, <laughs> Kenilworth, New Jersey. Naturally. Um, I know Marvel, because Halloween Fest is like, the, is like uh, Free Comic Book Day Part 2 in the comic book uh, retailing world. And I know they're reprinting. Marvel's offering, I believe, at least issue one of The Oath as one of their free comics for that day. So I'm sure we're going to see The Oath back in print, I would hazard a, uh, hazard to guess or wager, soon because of the forthcoming Doctor Strange film. Oh, yes. They'll and, be reprinting any self-contained Doctor Strange yes. story they have in the whole catalog. So, uh, And there aren't really that many Doctor Strange prints, uh, trades excuse me, that have been in print in recent years. There's only really been a handful um, and that's that's a book we're going to focus on at the end of our discussion, because uh, I, I I can tell Murd enjoyed it as as much as I have, so we'll be focusing on that as well. And I, th- I think the oath is actually a great if you want to get into Doctor Strange, it's a great book to jump into, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about that in more detail uh, as we move on. Plus, hey, it's got Night Nurse. <laughs> um, Outstanding. So we have we have a lot to talk about. Uh, and Strange is such a fascinating character, not just his origins, but his, the, the myriad powers he possesses, uh, the various uh, mystical beings he sends incantations to to uh, borrow their power. Murd's already mentioned several in our introduction in his, his always charming and apt way. And uh, there's enemies and allies to look at. Uh, again, this is a character who has been well entrenched in the Marvel Universe, in the Marvel firmament. Now, of course, he doesn't always get as much play as some of the other iconic characters, but I think that's going to change uh, very soon. And uh, he's a very important character, both for Marvel and for me personally as, as, a, as a lover of, of the Marvel Universe, so I've been very much looking forward to talking about him. So uh, I thought we'd start with uh, our personal uh, impressions of the character, and I will begin with Mr. Murdo. All right. Uh, well, I'll tell you, Chris. Um, 
Doctor Strange is to me, as I suspect he is to uh, quite a few Marvel readers out there, uh, one of those characters that um, I, I, of whom I'm aware and uh, that I appreciate very much. Uh, I, I acknowledge him as one of the Marvel mainstays going all the way back to the Silver Age, the original Marvel Age of comics. Indeed. He's a character I enjoy, uh, and a char- uh, I've always... Uh, uh, appreciate a character that's able to get his uh, superheroic business done with just a, a hint of refinement <laughs> and panache, and uh, Doctor Strange does bring that uh, to his uh, supernatural investigations. Uh, but at the same time, uh, he's also a character that I have uh, something of a tendency to take for granted, uh, even to forget about from time to time, and not one that I would uh, classify as one of my top favorites. Again, not, there's no fault of the character himself, it's just... This is a flaw with, well, not a flaw exactly, but a problem that arises with uh, well, mystical characters in general. I think there's probably a certain relatability factor that arises. We're going to talk about that, actually. kind of a bugaboo yeah. of, of, the, of the milieu in which supernatural characters work in comics. Uh, but it just seems difficult for any supernatural character to uh, really sustain uh, a comic chronicling his or her or their ongoing adventures. Um, so it's, uh, Doctor Strange... Uh, has certainly appeared in quite a few comics over the past 50 years, but uh, uh, he's the first, I notice, it's, it's worth mentioning, that uh, of all the characters that we've uh, given the spotlight treatment thus far on CGS, all the Marvel characters at least, mm-hmm. he's uh, the first one who's been unable to sustain uh, an ongoing title uh, through at least the 60s and 70s on into the 80s. Now, before the uh, relaunching mania took hold. There's been periodic home. relaunches in different volumes, yeah, yes. As far back as the early 70s, Doctor Strange uh, began to falter a little bit yeah. as far as his, his uh, ongoing run. So I would say he's a really good character, and among all the m- supernatural or mystical characters in comics, you know, Marvel or DC, I think he's probably the strongest, the best built. He's got that uh, classic uh, Marvel origin and motivation. He's got the built-in tragedy. Oh, yes. And uh, the, the tragic flaw, both uh, physical and uh, mental, emotional, you know, namely his uh, scarred hands and the nerve uh, damage. Yes, yeah. and also the arrogance that yes. uh, precipitated his fall from grace as a surgeon, and that eventually led to him building himself back up as a master of the mystic arts. So it's, he's, it's a classic Marvel character. He's got a lot of depth, um, and uh, uh, he's, he's got a strong background. He's got a strong supporting cast. He's got the whole mystic power set, and the uh, the invocation of the mystic entities, as you say, is always fun. Gave uh, Stanley a chance to really. <laughs> go crazy with some of the dialogue he created. And Murray, part of the reason I wanted to do this, I just wanted to hear you actually say a lot of those incantations as only you can in your singular way. So. I'll throw out a few as we go <laughs> along. Don't, never you mind. Never, never you worry. I was looking forward to that. Um, yeah, so, but uh, even so, even though he is one of the, the, the strongest of, of the mystic characters, I think, in comics, um, it, it, it's a little difficult for... It, it, it seems that people in general, comics fans in general, are more willing to accept him as a guest star than as the star of his own ongoing series. Goodness knows he's had enough ongoing series over the years, but uh, he's been out of uh, monthly publication for how many years now? Oh, jeez. And so he, he seems to function better as a, a mystic facilitator or a special yeah. consultant in the adventures of other characters. Well, it's, it's funny you mention that because as I look at because I compile a list of, of his major runs, um, and Doctor Strange Volume 3 ended issue, issue 90 in 1996, and since then, he's had – there's been various miniseries like The Oath, for example. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm sure many listeners know that coming out very soon is a new volume of Doctor Strange written by the great Jason Aaron and drawn, I think – I think this is the perfect artistic choice, Chris Pachalo. So we'll, right. we'll mention that you know, just at the end of our, our discussion as we do here at the beginning because I, I think there's great things ahead. Yep. So. Uh, that creative team could really make the character work. Yeah. Yeah, as long as the, char- the 
team sticks around and uh, Marvel doesn't start monkeying with the numbering again, but we <laughs> neither one of which is in any way guaranteed. But at the very least, we'll get a few really good issues of Doctor Strange. And, you know, every, let me just uh, qualify what I've been saying, too, you know, in deference to the point you've just made, Chris, that uh, even though it's, it's hard for Doctor Strange to sustain interest in an ongoing series over the years, um, every once in a while, even after the last of his ongoing series petered out, as you said, in 1996, we have occasionally gotten those really strong stories, such as The Oath, that remind us of just what kind of potential the character has, and that makes us long for someone to come along and uh, take hold of the character and propel him on to the heights of greatness of which we know he's capable, Just in, but in the long term. That's the thing. Sustainability, once again, is the key, and that means you know we need someone like a Roy Thomas again, for example, who's willing to stay with the character for a great number of issues. I concur, brother, especially when you think about the pivotal role Doctor Strange has played in the current Secret Wars miniseries. Um, still very, a very relevant character. Uh, anything you want to add to your initial impressions? I think it's high time that you've had your turn. Chris. Honored. Uh, my first exposure to the character was, and I'm sure many people share this, was in the Fireside edition of Son of Origins of Marvel Comics uh, by Stan Lee. Uh, again, most listeners are aware of what those books are. I'll just quickly recap in case you, if someone doesn't. In the 70s, uh, the Fireside publisher uh, – contracted Stan Lee to write a series of paperback books that included uh, his reflections. And again, we have to caution listeners. This is his version <laughs> of the beginnings of the Marvel Universe. And very – Stan Lee, very entertainingly written. But what the highlight of these books, because this when these trades came out, you really didn't have much in the way of, quote, trade paperbacks. So these were reprints of the first appearance of iconic Marvel characters. And usually there was a, a, second, a second reprint showing the character's progression later on in the Silver or Bronze Age. And I'd heard of Doctor Strange. You know, I'd seen images of the character, but I, I knew nothing about him. And again, I'm a kid. This is, this is you know, I read this uh, in the late 70s or very early 1980s. So when I got this the Son of Origins edition, I was very, I remember, I, there's a picture of him in my house. It's the early 1980s. I can tell by my father's really bad, large glasses and unfortunate uh, sweater and uh, hairstyle. <laughs> and I, of course, am wearing like a huge collared you know, shirt with sweater and so forth. And it's my family gathered in front of my grandparents' Christmas tree. And uh, I'm holding proudly my copy of Son of Origins, which I just, which I just opened uh, under the tree. And this is my first exposure to a Doctor Strange comic because there were no power records of Doctor Strange that I can recall or any kind of other multimedia where I would have had some kind of insight into the character. I just – I knew he existed. That was about it. So I was already familiar with the art of Steve Ditko from my exposure to Spider-Man at this point. So I was really excited to see Strange capture that way in that, that, that origin appearance. We, we'll get into the fact that what you see in, in, in Son of Orange is not the actual first appearance of Doctor Strange. It's his origin, which is not his first appearance in comics. They, they waited a few weeks before they actually told his origin. And uh, – then there's, of course, there's a secondary story from later on in the run. Uh, I want to say it's drawn by Marie Severin. I don't remember exactly off the top of my head. Um, where they where you, they show, they introduce you to, at least in Son of Origins, to uh, Umar, or Umar, who is the sister of the Dread Dormammu. And is it, you say, would you say, say Clea or Clea? How do you pronounce it? I've always said Clea. But that's I... what I've always said. So you're introduced in this backup story to... Uh, you know, the Ancient One is there again, of course, Doctor Strange's mentor and, and the predecessor, his predecessor is the Earth Sorcerer Supreme. And uh, 
Clea, who I think is still one of the most stunning women in the Marvel pantheon, especially when Gene, she's drawn by Gene Colan. And, uh, she achieves this fully clothed, too, yes, head to toe. Yes, that's a good point. And uh, do you say Umar or Umar? Uh, Umar. Umar, okay. Which yeah, is like Umar, but with a yeah, U. The Dread Dumarmu, Dumarmu's sister. And then I was also, at the, around the same time, I got Bring on the Bad Guys. Because uh, I got these books after they'd been out a little while because I was a little bit older and I could, could fully read them. And uh, that, of course, that issue introduces the origin and the first appearance of Dormammu, the dread master of the dark dimension, <laughs> who is one of this, these powerful mystical beings that even Strange himself at times has called on for as a source of power through it via an incantation. And uh, there, of course, you're introduced again, Ditko. Uh, and I was, as my young mind was just blown away, I mean, uh, by the trippy imagery Ditko brought into those uh, his rendering of the Dark Dimension, the Mindless Ones, and the first appearance of Clea. And uh, I was completely absorbed and just consumed, engrossed, I should say, by the imagery and uh, just the, the, the incantations that, as you mentioned, Stan Lee was clearly having a ball with. Uh, but first and foremost, those early stories, it was the world Ditko created. And just that... that of strange traveling to different dimensions and and the the psychedelia and, and you know stairways going to nowhere and and you know strange's bodies starts in one dimension then his head appears in another and it it just fried my young mind but in a very good way and uh i was very very taken with the character from that point forward now having said that i never regularly read dr strange i was always very cognizant of his role in the marvel universe like you said murray he was often a vital guest star in various titles and, 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 and events and so forth. I knew about his role in The Defenders. I read some of those issues. Um, but it, again, a lot of scattershot reading of the character. And in hindsight, I wish I had made more efforts to seek out uh, his title and, and the continuity because as I, as I was re researching for this episode and, and reading stories I hadn't read in years or experiencing new stories, despite the fact that his bibliography, you know, jumps from volume to volume. There's a lot of very vital work that was done by tremendous creators that we're going to be looking at. I was especially taken, for example, by the Roger Stern era of the 1980s, when you have artists like uh, Marshall Rogers, uh, Paul uh, Paul Smith. I mean, outstanding work. I know you're a big fan of Paul Smith. Yeah, and, and a very tight continuity in that era that we're going to be looking at. But, I mean, before that, you've got the legendary, and I think it's fair to say, Steve Engelhardt, Frank Brunner material uh, from the Bronze Age. And, of course, before that, we're going to look at, you know, the, the lead Ditko work in the Roy Thomas Gene Colon era, which is also equally important. So there's a lot of great stuff to sink our teeth into here. Um, so I, I'm, I'm glad we're doing this because it, it really made me re re renew my appreciation of the world of Doctor Strange. And I agree with you, Murd, that there's... There's so much here to honor. Um, and you mentioned relatability. I think that's a very important point because I think with a lot of the mystical characters, sometimes it can be hard for the reader to – while you can immerse yourself in, in, in the mysticism and, and the psychedelia, sometimes finding the human element can be difficult. And I think, I think with Doctor Strange, sometimes that can be an issue, but other times, it's depending on the creator, he's an extremely relatable character. Um, and I think that some of the best creators really balance that otherworldly, you know, far out, you know, groovy mysticism uh, <laughs> with the fact that Stephen Strange is a very complex three-dimensional character. Mm -hmm. 
Um, a little difficult to like at times. Even. Yes, and, and that, that can be purposeful. And uh, we're going to look at that as well. And in fact, you know, in, through my research, I'd forgotten that they've done some retconning over the years with his backstory, what happened to his original – his family, uh, the tragedy involving his parents, his siblings, and how that helped shape him into the hardened, callous surgeon we're first introduced to in Strange Tales number 110, his origin story. So I ask our listeners to uh, you know, pick up their wands of Watum, all right, <laughs> and uh, – kick back and i hope you'll enjoy this journey with us mm-hmm. so yes. anything else my friend before we plunge in here let the flames of Faltine lick at your toes <laughs> as, we, <laughs> as we press on okay now just to let's let's get uh, some some basic information uh, up front and center here obviously we're looking at dr strange also known as stephen vincent strange that is his full earthly name mm-hmm. Also known, of course, as the Sorcerer Supreme. A title that he needed to earn. Yes. We have to point out when, when Doctor thank you, Mer, when Doctor Strange begins, he is not the Sorcerer Supreme. Indeed yet. not. I think he's described as the master of black magic yes, at first. That, that's, that's often uh, – you often hear that. Um, but that's a title he has to earn. He doesn't have it right off the bat. I'm sh- and I'm interested to see when they do the movie um, how they're going to approach – the origin, are they going to jump in and just, just have him already established as that? Or I'm interested to see how they go about it. It would be a fun thing to have him do in the second movie, I think, yeah. to have him go through the trials or whatever he must do to become you know, guided by aged Genghis. He becomes the Sorcerer Supreme in Doctor Strange 2. Yes, we'll see. Or they might just give him the title right off the bat. Yeah. We'll find out, but I'm we looking sure forward will. to how they handle it. Um, his first appearance was in Strange Tales 110, 1963, and I, and I actually misspoke before. That is not his origin. That is just his first appearance. When we first meet Doctor Strange, he's already fully operating as, you know, a master of the mystic arts. Yeah, it's really just a quickie little five-pager like, backup story. Well, we have to remind listeners, I'm glad you mentioned that, that Strange Tales, just like Tales of Suspense, just like uh, Tales to Astonish, Journey into Mystery, these were house books where they would publish multiple stories. And, that, and again, because of the very restrictive, which you talked about in other episodes – uh, distribution deal Martin Goodman was forced to have through Independent News, which is DC's d- distribution arm. He could only publish eight titles a month going into the early 1960s. So this is a way that they were able to introduce a lot of the Marvel characters by putting them in these house books. You know, Tales to Astonish. You know, we think about Ant Man. We think then later we think about the Hulk and the Submariner appearing in there. Strange Tales, uh, Doctor Strange and Nick Fury, Agent of Shield, for example. Tales of Suspense, Iron Man and Captain America. Right. So. That's the way one of the ways Di- uh, Ditko, excuse me, Goodman kind of got around that to bring in more characters. Mm. Now, go ahead, Murray. I'm sorry. So that's how it is that uh, Doctor Strange's first appearance was not featured on the cover. It was just exactly. uh, shoved in the back behind a Human Torch story featuring a team up between the Wizard and Pastepot Pete. Ah, Pastepot Pete. <laughs> he was on the cover face. with his beret and his yes. big artist <laughs> smock and, and his paint gun, but Doctor Strange was in the back pages. And and to build on that, as as Doctor Strange builds in in uh, recognition and popularity, he'll start to appear on the cover, and then when Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. becomes a major character, they kind of alternate uh, back and forth. Now, yeah, As of uh, Strange Tales number 150, they put together a special dual logo so that the two of them, both Nick Fury and Doctor Strange, could be on the cover all the time. Brother Murdo, that's the kind of insight I was counting on. <laughs> I salute you. It's the kind of pedantry that we <laughs> have come to expect from Murdo Incorporated. Indeed. Now, uh, 110, so... The creative team is, of course, Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. This, again, besides Spider-Man, is the other major Lee-Ditko collaboration. 
Um, an important note, uh, as the title progresses, this is a rare case in the Silver Age where Lee gives plotting credit to the artist. And uh, Ditko does a lot of plotting for Doctor Strange. And many people believe that, who, who are better experts and, and uh, authorities on this than I am, that Ditko is in many ways probably the primary creator of the character. Certainly, as always, the visual, because that's the Marvel method. He produced the whole visual, and he certainly created the, just the bizarre, surrealistic, you know, captivating dimensions that Doctor Strange would travel through. And then Stan Lee came in and provided the dialogue. Yes, which is, cannot be undersold because so much of what makes Doctor Strange so much fun and sort of made him like a, a bit of a counterculture touchstone. Oh, for certain. Yeah. Because I know uh, thanks to Tom Wolfe's novel, uh, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, exactly. about Ken Kesey's Merry Pranksters, uh, Ditko's Doctor Strange comics were a great favorite of those counterculture icons. Exactly. And for, and for and those did. psychonauts, obviously, <laughs> uh, the kind of imagery in Doctor Strange would lend, you know, lend itself to that. So, um, love it. Psychonauts. Thank you, sir. Good word. And uh, so these men and, – and as you mentioned, Murd, Lee clearly was having a ball making up these far-out incantations that Doctor Strange would recite to call upon the various mystical beings who provide him with, with uh, his sorcerer's powers. By the seven rings of Ragador. Outstanding, <laughs> sir. Well I'm done. just going to keep throwing them in there. Please do. So these two men uh, worked on the book. Uh, together for a couple years, uh, and Strange's origin is told in Strange Tales number 115. That's where we actually get the actual origin of Doctor Strange, the famous story where, you know, Strange is the brilliant but callous neurosurgeon who, you know, is more interested in, in whether or not his patients can pay their fees versus, you know, helping his fellow men. It's interesting I pointed out here that uh, this is clearly the days before medical insurance where people actually had to pay the doctor. <laughs> Of course, back then, you know, you could actually could afford to go to the doctor without medical insurance. I remember when I was a child, you know, my parents took me to the doctor, and they just paid the doctor on the spot. Uh, those days, of course, are long past. I'm not going to get into a debate here on the merits of universal health care versus our current insurance system. But right. uh, just an, an interesting little – it just – when you read these books from the 60s, it's always interesting to see the culture of our country at that time and what was different compared to what you know we contend with today as citizens is just fascinating to me. Comics are some of the most interesting time capsules our culture has provided. Here, here. Now, before we plunge into the character's meat, just a little bit about his, his, his bibliography. So he first appeared in Strange Tales number 110 through 168. Uh, that title will then change. It will keep the numbering, but it will be Doctor Strange, Volume 1, issues 169 through 183. And then as we enter into the Bronze Age, uh, he appears in Marvel Premiere, issues 3 through 14. It's various creators, which we'll talk about shortly. Mm -hmm. And then we, 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 he gets his second title under his own masthead, Doctor Strange, Volume 2, issues 1 through 81, 1974 to 1987. And then Doctor Strange, Volume 3, issues 1 through 90, uh, 1988 through 1996. He was a regular member of the Defenders. Uh, so he appeared in obviously Marvel feature number one, which was the first appearance. Well, actually, it wasn't the first appearance of the Defenders. They first kind of came together, really, in various issues. I think of the Submariner, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that was right at the end of, uh, of the, the the first volume of Doctor Strange. Well, the, yeah, it's, uh, uh, yeah, that last issue of that first volume of Doctor Strange yeah. was a crossover between issues of Hulk and Submariner. I think Dr. Roy Thomas was trying to tie up loose narrative ends that he was trying to bring to culmination. 
and that then crosses over into Marvel feature and then finally into the Defenders title itself, where Doctor Strange is a mainstay member of that team. Uh, Although I am seeing here that uh, a couple of years actually passed between the end of Doctor Strange's first series and when and Marvel feature number one. Oh, it did. Okay, Ma- Marvel feature I want to say was what bronze? It was early bronze age. It certainly was. Uh, it was uh, cover dated December of seventy one. Okay. So, so depending on how you define it, it could be late Silver Age too. But I t- we tend to think that bronze equals seventy. Yeah, I mean that's that's a debate in, in fandom about. You know, for people who are, who, are, who are focused on that, when do these eras begin and end? I mean, I agree with you. For me, the Bronze Age is when Marvel hits the 15-cent covers and you come into the 1970s. Plus, you can also talk about, which not with the scope of this episode, but, you know, Phase 2 and all the new young creators who came in, many who had been fans originally. Some of those creators we'll talk about in this episode who certainly started sort of added this new creative fervor to Marvel Comics of the 1970s. And Doctor Strange is definitely part of that. That sort of creative, you know, ferment that was going on, <laughs> um, and then beyond that, I mean, as Murray mentioned, he he appears. I mean, we can't get into all the different guest appearances Doctor Strange has. Oh, there have been so many throughout his career. I mean, one of the earliest ones is in the Silver Age of the Fantastic Four, which you mentioned in our uh, Fantastic Four two-part epic Silver Age spotlight. Mm, right, uh, that, the number twenty-seven. It was his very first uh, appearance outside of his own exactly. strip. Exactly, and we have we should mention, thank you, Murray, that. Initially, Doctor Strange is very much not sort of an overt superhero, so to speak. I mean, to citizens of the Marvel Universe, he is like an expert on the occult and, uh, you know, dark magic and things of that nature. But he's not really perceived as a hero like, like the Fantastic Four are, for example. And, you know, gradually start to have him interact with other members of the Marvel Universe um, until he becomes, you know – clearly a member of the Pantheon, so to speak. Uh, but he's very much, you know, on his own, sort of protecting our dimension from all these other dimensional, you know, threats that are out there, which is his, his main his main focus. Um, but again, there have been many other guest appearances, miniseries. Um, we'll talk about the oath near the end of the episode. Uh, but this is, this is a character who's really, they've woven his own, a, a rich narrative tapestry form. It's just, the challenge for a reader is it's scattered among different, volumes in different series. Uh, a lot, now, Marvel's done Essentials and, and, and uh, Masterworks that have covered a lot of this material. Um, so a lot of it's out there. Unfortunately, a lot, of the, a lot of the key Doctor Strange appearances that have appeared in trades are out of print. But I'm sure that's going to change uh, <laughs> yes, very, very soon. soon. Now, in terms of – and we're jumping any time, of course, brother. Uh, well, in what direction are you planning to go next? My I friend? just wanted to talk here about – just a, a bit about the character's origin and background. Oh, okay. So a bit of prehistory. Yes. All right. In that case, that's where I was going to go next. So why don't you proceed? All righty. Um, again, anybody who's, who's read the origin in, in Strange Tales 115, you know, you know the basic story. Strange was, again, probably the foremost neurosurgeon in the Marvel Universe, in the United States of the Marvel Universe. And you know, he, people were in awe of him. He, he, he always succeeded in his operations. But he was very callous, very cold. And again, it's all about the money. Um, the materialism, uh, you know, self-indulgent pleasure, not and not really about you know uh, the call for helping his patients. You know, the, the the human aspects of why one becomes a doctor. You would think he may have had that at one time, but when we meet the character, he's a very hard-hearted person. And in that story, we find out that 
Strange ends up in a car accident. He's driving some sporty model, right? And uh, flies off the road. He survives, and he's restored to full health, but the nerves of his hands are so damaged that while they may not affect you or I because we're not surgeons, for him, you know, obviously a surgeon, the hands cannot shake at all. It has to be absolute control. He can't do it anymore. So despite all of his knowledge, all of his skills as a doctor, he's lost that sort of fine-tuned use of his hands. He can't perform operations. And there's, there's a famous scene where another doctor says, look, we can still use the consultant. Strange is like, bah, I consult for no one. You know, Stephen Strange is, you know, no one's second fiddle, so to speak. I'm surprised he didn't refer to himself in the third person. Yeah. <laughs> so he sort of loses his way, and over time he starts to deteriorate. Uh, physically and mentally, he becomes a derelict. I mean, they, and, and this is classic Ditko art, you know, strange, you know, on the docks with the mist and, like, the cigarette hanging out of his mouth and, like, you know, roustabouts and uh, shady characters on the docks talking about, you know, there's rumors about this this mystical ancient one, you know, mm -hmm. often in, in you yeah. know, Asian, you know, you assume it's Tibet right. and so That's forth. That's just what they're talking about down by the docks. Yeah, exactly. And strange overhears this, you know, this guy can work miracles and he decides, all right, maybe this guy can heal me because he's tried everything he can. His fortune's gone. He's a drunkard, basically, you know, dissolute. And he travels, of course, to Tibet because anything involving mysticism is in Tibet or Nepal in these stories. Yeah. And that's where Dr. Doom goes, you know, when, on his quest, <laughs> yes. as we talked about in our Doom spotlight. How many different hidden civilizations are out there uh, anyway? This, between that and the Yetis, I don't know. But <laughs> um, he travels to Tibet to find the Ancient One, who is this centuries-old... Uh, mystical being and who is we found eventually is the earth sorcerer supreme and when strange uh, travels to the ancient ones uh, his hidden refuge so to speak no nothing to take away from the inhumans there uh, he also meets strange's excuse me the ancient one's disciple baron mordu anything you want to say about him uh, well uh, he's not a nice person uh, <laughs> Full name, Baron Karl Amadeus Mordo. I was counting on that. He's yes, a Transylvanian nobleman born in the city of Vafmandra. <laughs> uh, his grandfather, Viscount Crowler, was a pretty accomplished black magician, and uh, he's trying to follow in the family business there, uh, although he kind of hated his grandfather and his mother. I think the way it worked was his mother killed his father, and that he then turned against both his mother and her father. And so the, 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 he, Mordo is almost as complex a figure as, as Doctor Strange, actually. There have been a couple of pretty good stories told with him, too. But yeah, he, uh, he was there at uh, the, the Ancient One's Lamasery before Doctor Strange arrived. He was the pupil, and uh, the Ancient One knew all along that he had blackness in his heart, yes. and he was too ambitious, and he was there studying for all the wrong reasons. So he continued to teach him uh, the mystic arts, but uh, realizing all the time that it wasn't uh, it wasn't going to work well, out. Well, we find Stringing out, him along, you might even we, say. Exactly. We find out that really the Ancient One was waiting for Stephen Strange all this time. Like, right. he knew that he was supposed to be the source, next Sorcerer Supreme. Yeah. And the key moment in that story, again, like Merch said, it's short. It's in the back of Strange Tales, all right, in, in Strange Tales 115, is that Strange realizes that Mordu has nefarious, a nefarious agenda and that the Ancient One is in danger. And it, it awakens this selflessness in him. We, we, now, it, they retcon later that Doctor Strange wasn't always this callous SOB. When he was a younger man, he was pursuing the, the medical arts, and he was a more idealistic. But there was a series of tragedies in his life. His sister died in a – she drowned, and he wasn't able to save her. Um, 
His parents both died tragically, uh, and he, he started to kind of shut down over this, this, this avalanche of grief that had fallen upon his head. And then his brother was outraged that he had not shown a great deal of sympathy for when his mother died. And, and then his brother ran out in, uh, upset in the street, was killed in an accident. So hmm. by the time we – that's – it's all retcon. But by, by – so when they get back to him as a surgeon, he's so hardened by all these experiences, he's just kind of closed himself off from any empathy essentially. And the ancient one kind of reawakens that in him because he decides to try to warn the ancient one because he finds out what Mordu is up to. And this, this is classic Ditko imagery. Mordu casts a spell and Strange has like this metal clamp suddenly appear on his, his face, his mouth, I can and binding his right hands. Now. And uh, Mordu says, well, of course, you know, only I, you and I can see this. No one else will be able to just realize that you can't speak. Um, and he, you know, Strange wants to warn the Ancient One. He can't. And then the Ancient One, of course, waves his hands and, and Mordu's uh, uh, binding spell vanishes. And the Ancient One says to Strange, I knew all, all along what Mordu was up to. I wanted to keep him close, like keep my enemies closer, so to speak, to keep an eye on him. Right. Keep and him in magical reform schools. So to speak. <laughs> well put, my friend. And he said, you know, I, I, I am going to accept you now, Stephen Strange, as my disciple. And that's where Strange begins on the path, and it's, it's an arduous path. It doesn't happen overnight that he will start to learn the ways of, of mysticism, of the mystic arts, so to speak. And uh, he's, I think he's, he serves for, I think they say seven years or several years, as an apprentice. And eventually Strange returns to the United States. He's not the Sorcerer Supreme yet, as we mentioned earlier, because the Ancient One is still alive and is still acting as the Earth Sorcerer Supreme. And he sets up shop. This is this is classic Doctor Strange, the Doctor Strange legend, in of course Greenwich Village, at one seventeen A Bleecker Street. And this becomes known, of course, as Murd. Why don't you say it in your tone? The Sanctum Sanctorum. Uh, sorry, I mispronounced it. Wouldn't you know? The Sanctum Sanctorum of Doctor Strange. Well yes. done, Holy of Holies. Now, we all know the famous window. So if, you, if you're traveling to the Marvel Universe and you're on Bleecker Street, Greenwich Village, you're going to see – it's on the corner of this, this house. And it's sort of like – it's like a – almost like a ceiling skylight, so to speak. Yeah, big circular thing yeah. with a couple of uh, curvilinear – Three swooping lines. And, of course, this is the seal of the Vashanti, which protects his abode from all kinds of mystical threats and potential dangers. Yeah, it's one of the few things I picked up from reading Doctor Strange comics in the 90s. Uh, well, during the Midnight Suns run, yes. was that uh, another name for that is the Anomaly Rue. Oh, I did not know that. I, I, I don't think very many people other than David Quinn, who was writing the book at the time, yeah. do know it. I think it's kind of been forgotten. Well, we're resurrecting it right here because that's, that's a great description. Well, Seal of the Vishanti works very well, too. Now, when Strange arrives, he – the person – there's someone there waiting for him and a character that I think – Often gets kind of underplayed, but I think is a great supporting character is Wong. Yeah, he's about the only member of, well, yeah. of Doctor Strange's supporting cast that anybody seems to be able to remember yeah. from run to run. He's the one they always bring back. He's, he's, he's the continuity. And the history of the, the Wong character, uh, let, I mean, we can, we can get past the, when you think about it, the ridiculous Asian stereotype of having like the Asian guy as like the step and fetching uh, servant of, you know, the white magician. But uh, that. Well. that at least he wasn't given like a Charlie Chan style yes. broken English no. dialect to speak. And uh, Wong, over time, 
is really built, and I think Vaughn, Vaughn uses him beautifully in The Oath. Hmm. He's built into uh, you know, a sophisticated three-dimensional character who is not only Doctor Strange's uh, servant but really his closest friend, essentially. Sometimes his only friend. His only friend, exactly. And Wong, Wong – the thing about Wong is he comes from a dynasty of men who their sole purpose in life is to serve the Sorcerer Supreme. And he is the he is the latest in this line of servants, and Wong is Wong is not just some butler; he's also a martial arts master. And not only does he, he tend Strange's home and, and look after him and, and, and act as his his his, his support s- staff, so to speak, but he also has trained Stephen Strange in the martial arts. So if you try to take on Stephen Strange physically. You might be surprised that you're going to get the crap kicked out of it because <laughs> – Again, used to good effect in the – Yes. So you know, the, the, again, Wong plays a very, a very uh, multidimensional role in the character's history. Um, now to the public, Doctor Strange, especially initially, is known as an occult expert, expert and a mystic consultant, not as a superhero per se. And in fact, there's many scenes where Doctor Strange will appear in public and he will use his magic to conceal his costume. And uh, or I guess his mystical robes, everyone uh, you know, his adornments, mm-hmm. and he's just wearing street clothes because he doesn't want people to know, you know, who he actually is and what he's actually doing. Um, and as we mentioned initially, his appearances are really restricted to defending our dimension from otherworldly dimensions like the Dread Dormammu or his probably his first uh, antagonist, Nightmare. Definitely his first. Yeah, who appears in Doctor Strange one ten. Mm. Um, you're right. That is that is the first villain we see. In the him. very first, yes. And those, those are probably – those are two of his biggest rogues, Nightmare and Dormammu. Mm-hmm. Um, Baron Mordo. Baron Mordo. The, uh, Umar. Uh, so at first he is just defending Earth from all these other dimensional threats. And you don't see him interacting that much with other Marvel heroes until Murd mentioned Fantastic Four 27. So a couple years into the FF's run before Doctor Strange because oftentimes the FF was the showcase book for guest appearances early on of other Marvel characters because that was the top-selling Marvel comic until Spider-Man overtook it, I want to say, in either the late 60s or the early 1970s. So he's kind of off in his own world. Uh, And even even later on in many of Doctor Strange's issues, it's him kind of doing his own thing. But but again, they take pains over time to start to – bring him into the wider Marvel Universe. And, and, and today, I think it's fair to say he's fully immersed in the overall uh, Marvel Universe. Now, anything you want to add, Nerd, before I get into sort of his key enemies and allies? Um, well, yes, I, I wanted to uh, go back and uh, I'll talk about uh, well, literally the prehistory of Doctor Strange. Please, sir, uh, uh, the character actually had uh, a couple of uh, tryouts. Prototype, go for it. Right, yep, exactly, yep. yes. Um, yeah, yeah, antecedents, precursors. Yeah. Uh, the most, uh, best known of which, of course, is Doctor Druid. Yep. Was originally known as Doctor Drom. Right. Yes. Okay. Yes, right. So Just Doctor Doom with an R in it. Exactly. Yeah, which was later <laughs> you know, Doctor Droom. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So yeah. emended uh, to uh, Druid, you know, retconned yeah. uh, right. into Doctor Druid uh, to avoid confusion with Doctor Doom, who he first appeared in Amazing Adventures number one back in 1961. Well done. Before either Doctor Strange or Doctor Doom had come on the yeah. scene, um, but uh, that story uh, was uh, actually drawn by Jack the King Kirby, and it was inked by Steve Ditko. And in fact, now that you mention it, that's, I know many comic historians consider that. Almost like the prototypical beginning of the Marvel Universe, essentially, the, the application of that character. So. Because he was a recurring character. He was not just a one-off. He was, he was a, nothing more than a back-up character, yeah. really. Amazing Adventures was one of the monster-dominated magazines that Marvel As published they were at, at that, that time. time. 
Yep, never made it onto the front cover. He was always playing second banana to giant monsters. <laughs> um, but yeah, he had a few appearances there, and uh, in Strange Tales number 97, also, he, he uh, made one last uh, appearance, um, most of which were actually drawn by Kirby. Mm. And uh, his origin is actually quite similar to Doctor Strange's. He was a psychiatrist uh, practitioner of sorts who uh, went on a quest to find a Tibetan holy man who apparently knew some magic things. And he was put through a series of trials. He had to fight some creature who was a cross between an ape and a centaur or something <laughs> weird. Oh, an ape and a lion, I think it was, actually. Some cryptid like that. And uh, then he was given the power to do some minor feats of mysticism by this guy. And years later, it was established that this uh, lama that he had found out there in Tibet was actually the ancient one in disguise. So Druid and Strange are actually fellow disciples oh, of well uh, the ancient one. And uh, neither one of them nor any of the readers knew it until a long time later on. And probably not the creators, too, but anyway. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, yeah, so, <laughs> Eventually, the the the, the uh, sort of kinship between those two characters was made explicit, since you know, everybody outside the Marvel universe knows that Doctor Druid was just kind of a of uh, an early prototype right. of Doctor Strange. But eventually, the two characters made peace with that within the context of the Marvel universe. Uh, Doctor Druid once referred to himself as a precursor of Doctor Strange, and that was the first time I had ever seen the word precursor used in print. See, who says you don't learn good vocabulary from comics? Not I, sir, and I know not you. No, I mean one of my favorite words, Inglenook. <laughs> Thanks, Stan. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> I knew you were going to go there. Yep. Um, and one other thing. Uh, sh- just shortly before, just a couple of months before uh, the first appearance of Doctor Strange in Strange Tales number 110, there was a different Doctor Strange character. Well, this I did not know. Uh, yeah, this was in Tales of Suspense number 41, uh, which is just the third appearance of Iron Man. So this is a right. very early Iron Man story, and uh, he fought a villain named Doctor Strange, oh. Doctor Carlo Strange, who <laughs> was a, a mad scientist who gained the ability to control people's minds after being struck with lightning. Mm-hmm. Stan Lee, shortly after that, and like just within the, the the very brief window between that story and Strange Tales, he uh, sent a letter to I think Doctor Jerry Bales. It was uh, reproduced on uh, the, the, the Doctor of, Strange. founder of Alter Ego. Right, yeah. like uh, one of the uh, the deans of comics fandom. Yeah. Uh, he mentioned that, oh, we've got this five-page story coming up soon by Steve Ditko. Uh, it was pretty much his idea. Uh, but uh, he related that uh, he, came, he gave the name to the character because uh, uh, he was originally going to call him Mr. Strange. Mm. But then he remembered that there was this Iron Man villain called Doctor Strange, which gave it a bit more of a cachet. And yes. So, and that's how uh, our oomph. master of the black magic became... Yes. Uh, Doctor Strange. I think Stan Lee, if I don't have it in front of me, if I remember correctly, he was remembering a pulp character. Another thing that may have inspired Doctor Strange was it Chandu the Magician. Right. Yeah. It was an old radio program. Or maybe a radio program from, from the, the yeah, early I, 20th century. Yeah, so. I, I do think uh, Stan Lee was familiar with that. Yeah, that may have been, a, been a, a, one of the ingredients as well. Yeah. Sometime so. later on, a member of the Headmen became known as Chandu the Mystic. <laughs> uh, I'm sure is like a, a direct nod yes. to that old character. And correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, wasn't uh, the appearance of Doctor Strange based on Vincent Price? I I don't know. If, I don't know off the top of my head. He certainly looks like Vincent Price, so yeah, that, that would, certainly wouldn't surprise me. Really, never hit home to me until I saw some of Marcos Martin's uh, art and also you know, character sketches for. I the never Oath. thought about that either, but I think you're right on the money about that. Plus, his middle name is Vincent, so. Yeah, I mean, there are people out there who are far better versed in Ditko than I am. I don't, I don't know how much swiping Ditko did in terms of using reference references for different uh, characters and faces. Mm-hmm. There are other artists who do that wonderfully, like Paul Galassi, for example. But I don't know if Ditko did, but it, it makes sense, yeah. absolutely. And Vincent Price was certainly well-known in the pop culture back then as, you know, 
actor associated with horror and suspense mm. and general creepiness. Yep. You know. And by 1963, he had made his share. Yes. With plenty more to come. Yes. <laughs> what else did you want to throw in there? Yep, that was it. Okay. As Terrific. far as like prehistory well done, goes. So moving on then to... Yeah, I just wanted to touch upon a couple of the just fundamental facets of the character. Uh, we talk about key enemies. I mean, Doctor Strange doesn't have the most expansive rogues gallery. We're not talking about like Spider-Man or Batman or anything like that. Um, but certainly Nightmare, who first appeared in his first appearance, issue 110 of Strange Tales. He appeared first as like a shadowy figure on a horse, and uh, he, feeds, he feeds upon the fear of dreaming humanity. And uh, that first story is almost like a little morality tale where... Oh, Ditko excelled at those. Which he did, you know. And, and I know Lee loved O. Henry-type endings and these types of stories where... The man Nightmare is haunting turns out to be this this criminal who's committed this heinous act, and uh, you know he's he desperately wants to be able to sleep, and uh, Nightmare's you know, like you know he's like a parasite eventually essentially feeding off of him, and Strange is able to ward Nightmare off, but you know the guy, the guy is forced to acknowledge and, and accept comeuppance for his crime essentially. Uh, of course, Strange's arch enemy is Dormammu, and I'm wondering if they can use Dormammu in the film or not. That'll be interesting. Hmm. Um, he is the ruler of the Dark Dimension, and he'll first appear in issues 126 and 127 of Strange Tales. And, of course, Dormammu usually has a flaming head, which is like, this, like the, his badge of office, essentially. Right. When he's not in power, like when his sister Umar later becomes the ruler of the Dark Dimension, the flaming sort of thing it, it doesn't conceal her face, but appears around the back of her head, essentially. I think those might be the flames of Faltine. Murd, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt you. And uh, Dormammu was an incredibly powerful sorcerer. Uh, Practically a god, in yeah, fact. Yeah, well, because sometimes even Strange has called upon Dormammu's power in his incantations. And in their first appearances, Strange makes it very clear that Dormammu is more powerful than him. Um, and Dormammu, you can tell that Dormammu is his superior at that point in the use of the mystic arts and black magic and so forth. Um, but, of course, in that story, the, the, the dark dimension has this barrier that Dormammu maintains, which keeps out the mindless ones. Oh, yes. Bird, who are they? <laughs> mindless ones are these uh, horrible uh, golem-like yes, creatures. Yes, description, yeah. These big, lumbering, humanoid masses. They, they, they look like they're covered with like a thick elephant hide. Yes. They, they kind of look like walking cocoons, yes. really. And inst- where they, they, as their name implies, they are not intelligent creatures. They're no. not sentient. They just live to destroy. They just mm. rampage around. And they, where their faces should be, there is instead... Uh, it's like a slit. Yeah, it's, it's like a, an, an opening, an yeah. aperture that yeah. leads into... Uh, apparently a limitless uh, reservoir of destructive energy that they release in the form of blasts through this facial hole. And they just kind of rampage around and destroy everything that's in their path by blasting, well, sending these face blasts out. And also just fighting each other and whoever comes into contact Mm -hmm. with them. Yep, they're a great visual. Yeah, they are. It's classic Ditko. And uh, Dormammu, I mean, he's a malevolent ruler, but he also is trying to protect his dimension. And because the people of the dark dimension l- look like humans, they, they they wear funky Ditko outfits, but they're just they look humanoid. And uh, he's created this barrier to get the mindless ones out. And his battle with Strange weakens the barrier, and he's forced to accept Strange's help to reconstitute the barrier. Which, of course, Dormammu never forgave that he had to rely on Stephen Strange to keep them ward off the mindless ones. And that, of course, is the beginning of their almost endless battle and rivalry, essentially. Dormammu is a malevolent presence who is interested in conquest outside his realm. 
Uh, his sister, Umar, who is also also a powerful mystic, she's ruled the Dark Dimension at, at various times as well. And uh, they're both mortal enemies of Strange. Um, another key figure who you mentioned, of course, is Baron Mordu, who is Strange's first opponent, essentially. Uh, well, no, not, not, well, in terms of his origin, Baron right. Mordu was his first. Right, not in terms of publishing chronology, yes. but in terms of the character's personal history. And yeah. Mordu has appeared many times uh, to try to you know, muddy Doctor Strange's waters, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, he's a very powerful mystic. But I think it's fair to say he's not really Doctor Strange's equal. Um, but he's, he's, he's close. I'm not sure if he's even alive now in the Marvel Universe or not, to be honest with you. Well, yeah, again, as we learned from the oath, he was dead for at least a time. Yeah. And he had a daughter, uh, Baroness Astrid Mordo, and mm -hmm. uh, she's popped up uh, from time to time. Also. Again, one of the tough things about chronicling this stuff is you get into the more recent times, the continuity is so scattershot at this point. For real. It's difficult. And, and what I really enjoyed as I was reading his earlier adventures, especially in the 80s, how tight the continuity was. And you really had that sense of this This is an integrated world and universe. Where, and that, of course, at that time, they still had the editorial boxes saying, hey, check out, issue this for that. And, you know, <laughs> that's all gone now. It's a bygone era. So it was fun to revisit that that version of continuity, essentially. Any other villains you think I'm missing that are, that are pivotal? Oh, well, there, there are a few. Well, Fire away. Sort of less important ones that are – we'll, we'll encounter them as we uh, make our way through the ages here. Um, well, let me see. Um, oh, here's a good one. Um, first appearing in Strange Tales number 147, Kaluwu. Ah, yes. Yeah, Strange actually encountered him before he ever met uh, Umar. Uh, Kaluwu is um, a sorcerer who was a contemporary of the Ancient One. The two of them grew up together mm -hmm. and were friends, actually, in the uh, mystic valley of Kamartaj, <laughs> which is also Wong's homeland, actually, where Wong's, uh, his lineage, as you yes, pointed out, lineage, the yep. proud long line of uh, magician servitors, um, th that's where they all originated. And uh, Many centuries ago, Kaluwu and uh, the Ancient One were friends, uh, but then uh, Kaluwu uh, started to grow in mystical power and uh, became ruthless and ambitious and decided he was going to uh, make an army of all the other inhabitants of Kamartaj and conquer the world, and the Ancient One had to step up his own mystic studies to keep up, and uh, he managed to banish Kaluwu from Kamartaj and from Earth's dimension. Uh, he was actually the Ancient One's superior in magical skill at that time. Mm. The Ancient One had plenty of time to, to uh, bone up <laughs> in the <laughs> centuries that followed, and then Doctor Strange had to uh, take him on. Kaluwu was definitely Doctor Strange's superior in might. Uh, probably somewhere between Strange and Dormammu mm -hmm. was Kaluwu. And, um, but Strange still, of course, managed to defeat him. Of course. And uh, interestingly, uh, just not too long ago in uh, one of the various Avengers series, one of the ones that involves Luke Cage, Mighty Avengers, I think, uh, there was a storytelling uh, uh, about a haphazard group of heroes that could be described as Mighty Avengers 1973. So Luke Cage's father. I have that trade. I've been dying to read it. It's on my nightstand because Blade the Vampire Slayer is in that oh, too. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to read that. Original yeah. Blade. And yes. you know what? Kaluwu is a member of that group of characters for whatever reason. Oh, wow. I can't wait to read that. <laughs> yeah. I actually bought that arc because, I mean, how, how could I pass up a, the 70s Avengers? Made for you. Blade with his, his uh, green Pink pants jacket. and his turtleneck. Come on. Yeah. So, so yeah, Kaluwu is one worth mentioning. Um, now, let's see. Um... Uh, the, the Ancient One was killed, well, killed, quote-unquote, right. for the first time by a rampaging magical juggernaut named Zom. <laughs> he's uh, kind of like a magic Hulk, you know, and yeah. like the Hulk, kind of a sympathetic figure. Um, he wasn't entirely in control of himself. I think the deal was he had a magic lock of hair at the front of his head that if it was ever cut or must out of place, he would uh, go on the rampage. 
And, uh, but, Why not? So the Ancient One's first uh, fake death happened as a result of that character. Um, who else we got? Uh, Yandroth. Uh, he, uh, he was sort of the scientist supreme of his other dimensional world, mm -hmm. just as Doctor Strange is the sorcerer supreme of this one. And by the time these characters first met, Doctor Strange had assumed the role mm -hmm. of sorcerer supreme. Uh, this is in Strange Tales, number 164 in 1968. And uh, Yandroth uh, was the character who precipitated uh, the, uh, the, the Defenders in Marvel feature some years later. And, Outstanding, uh, sir. Yeah, so he's, he's uh, been a thorn in the Defender's side in a number of different ways. Uh, really more of a Defender's villain than a strange yeah. villain in, in the end. So if we're, if we're restricting ourselves to the 60s material at this point, uh, I think that's, uh, that's about all I've got as far as villains Sounds go. Sounds good. Uh, I also wanted to touch upon Strange's key allies. Um, of course, besides Wong and the Ancient One, who we've already talked about, uh, Clea is... is, is Probably the most famous and most important. Uh, she's, I, she's the love of Strange's life in terms of his comic book history that we're familiar with. Uh, she is a denizen of the Dark Dimension. She's actually the daughter of uh, Umar. That's not revealed right away. In fact, when you first appear, see Clea, they don't even tell you her name, actually. Right. Um, first time we see Dormammu, too, I think. Yeah. Same issue. And they appear in this together. And, uh, you know, she's trying to help Strange navigate and survive the Dark Dimension. And uh, she, you know, she, this is all Ditko, of course. And she'll reappear, and eventually they establish that there's a romantic connection between them, an attraction. And Clea has developed very well over time. She really becomes, over time, a very three-dimensional character. She becomes Doctor Strange's apprentice eventually and becomes a formidable uh, mystic practitioner in her own right. Mm -hmm. um, she'll eventually return to the Dark Dimension and, and lead a rebellion to try to free her people from the sinister machinations of Dormammu and her mother mm -hmm. and so forth. And does so without Doctor Strange's help most yes. of the time, which kind of leads to strains in their relationship yes. after um, a while. Uh, I'm not even sure if, they've even if they're even using her in continuity at this point. No, they're not using Doctor Strange himself most of the time. Yeah, so. I mean, he's, he's in Secret Wars right now, but um, I, I, don't, I haven't recalled seeing her in quite some time. But uh, in, if we're talking about the history of Doctor Strange, pivotal supporting character. Without question. And uh, for me, one of the most beautiful women in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> when Gene Colan draws... Clea, wow. Uh, magnificent. Uh, we'd mentioned Wong, of course. Later on in the character's run, I like this character quite, quite a bit, is uh, Sarah Wolf, who in the 80s becomes Doctor Strange's business manager. <laughs> and this is the great Roger Stern run where, where Stern takes great strides in balancing the mysticism of Doctor Strange and the relatability. And a character like Sarah Wolf really serves that purpose nicely, and she's an American Indian, a Cheyenne, I believe. Right, you are. And uh, she's descended uh, from a, a Cheyenne medicine man. Yeah, but she has no mystical powers herself. Right. And she's she's, she's Doctor Strange's business manager, but she's a very likable uh, character who shares a lot of his adventures and acts as a support uh, for him. And she also develops r real feelings for Wong, actually, um, which I think he's very hesitant to return because he feels his sole purpose on Earth is to serve. The Sorcerer Supreme. Um, but they do a lot of interesting things. Just, just, she's just a very refreshing, very human character in Strange's world for much of his uh, Copper Age appearances. Uh, in terms of other superheroes, as you mentioned, Strange will gradually introduce the Marvel Universe. Really, I think his first major super ally is Spider-Man. Uh, he appears in Amazing Spider-Man Annual 2 in the Silver Age. And uh, Strange and Spidey will... will work together many times throughout Marvel history. 
and I think it's fair to say Spider-Man is one of Doctor Strange's probably closest allies among mm-hmm. the – and they, they do a great great dynamic because, you know, Doctor Strange, depending on his rating, can sometimes come across as kind of stiff as a character. And when Spider-Man talks to him, he like, calls him Doc and you know, the, the, <laughs> the, the humor, and it's, 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 a, it's a good dynamic between the two of them. Yes, indeed. Another major ally, Doctor Strange, is actually a favorite character of mine, Dane Whitman, the Black Knight. Because of the mysticism of his sword, the Ebony Blade, uh, they, they'll, they'll team up in the Silver Age. They'll team up again in the Copper Age. Actually, Doctor Strange will help alleviate the Black Knight's curse at one point. Um, the Fantastic Four, of course, worked with Doctor Strange on numerous occasions throughout their history. Go ahead, Murd. I'm sorry about to speak. Uh, he has a certain connection with the X-Men, too, thanks to their mutual foe, the Juggernaut. That's right. Uh, we learned that the Juggernaut's root uh, – he has the Crimson Gem of uh, Ciderac, which is well one of done, the sir. other dimensional beings upon whom Doctor Strange sometimes calls, you know, well by the done. Crimson Bands of Ciderac. Indeed. And uh, so uh, the Juggernaut gets his power from the same place, and so uh, there's a couple of times in the Silver Age, actually, when uh, uh, Doctor Strange goes up against Juggy, and the first time was in, <laughs> the, in a guest appearance in the X-Men comic, uh, which is uh, number, 100, uh, number 33 in 1967, Into the Crimson Cosmos. Magnificent. Um, the Avengers have worked with Doctor Strange on numerous occasions. Uh, one story I just reread that I love from the 80s is, uh, again, the Roger Stern era when – and we'll talk about this a little bit later – when Doctor Strange takes on Dracula. And this is the classic uh, Montesi formula. Oh, yeah. Is it Montesi or Montesi? Uh, well, I say Montesi. I used to say Montesi, but if this if it's going by the rules of Italian, it's probably like Montesi. Which so sounds that. more dramatic, but uh, – the Avengers of the Scarlet Witch, especially in Captain Marvel, the Monica Rambo character will play a role in that. Of course, Strange is very involved in these post-Civil War New Avengers uh, adventures. Uh, so he's worked with them many times. And, of course, most importantly, the Defenders, of which he's a founding member. And uh, he's present, not the, the, the team's entire history, but he's very much a, both a charter member and an ongoing member for much of the team's uh, adventures. And, and Clea will join them, him in some of those adventures of the Defenders as well. Um, so that's that's a whole nother that's like a whole another episode talking about the defenders. Yeah, I was uh, going to say that is definitely worthy of its own spotlight. It sure is someday in the queue. <laughs> <laughs> After it, God knows how many others were one. Yes, yeah, true that. Um, now Strange has also worked with the surviving van- vampire hunters from Tomb of Dracula, Blade, Frank Drake, and Hannibal King, who himself is a classic you know kind of crime noir private eye who happens to be a vampire who refuses to suck human blood. Um, we'll, we'll come back to that story. In more recent times, uh, they've established that Strange is a member of the Illuminati. Murray, you want to just remind people what the, what the role of the Illuminati is in the Marvel Universe? Oh, yes. They're uh, big-time uh, well, movers, shakers, plotters, and planners. Well put. Um, of the Mar- b- behind-the-scenes guys. Yeah. Uh, and I do say guys because I'm pretty sure they are all male. Yes, that's correct. Um, just to... People who seem to think that they deserve to be the architects of destiny for the world, and uh, they include uh, Dr. Charles Xavier or Professor Charles Xavier, Indeed. Reed Richards, Black Bolt, Namor the Submariner, and um, Dr. Strange himself. And the Black Panther. Uh, yes, of course. I, I, how could I forget the Black <laughs> Panther with you in the room? Uh, but yes, they uh, they divided the Infinity Gems among themselves. Yes. I think that's how the group came together, actually. Um, uh, when after the Infinity Gauntlet affair, they decided it was too dangerous for these gems to be left in the hands of. Well, actually, that can't be. They must have come together before. Well, that. In, in the Illuminati miniseries by Bendis and Jim Chung, which is magnificent, I think it's Jim Chung. Um, they first come together after the Kree Scroll War. Ah, 
All right. So that's the, remember they travel to the Scroll Throne World to try to try to warn them off, and we, they retcon that that's how the scrolls were able to make to get their blood and, and create the whole secret invasion with the clones and all that mm. type of thing. So. All right. Yeah. So yeah, they're they're, they're somewhat well intentioned uh, meddlers in. In the collective destiny of the denizens of the Marvel Universe Earth. And Doctor Strange very much played a role in the Illuminati. And again, as Murd said, they're very much working in the shades of gray of the Marvel Universe. So they do things that are questionable or maybe for the greater good, but the means are, are you know, distasteful to say the least. Which is why they're kept secret. Yes. And, uh, you know, those who are currently reading Avengers and all about the incursions which led up to the Secret War, Doctor Strange is heavily involved in all of that. Uh, strange other just key moments I want to mention. Sort of some broad strokes here. Uh, strange uh, considered the M Day, the House of M, to be a great failure because th- what happened to the Scarlet Witch, who also was a practitioner not only of her mutant hex power but also of sorcery as well. Um, during the Civil War, Strange did not take sides. He, re- he, w- he, w- he wanted to stay neutral. Apparently, he later regretted that, and he did try to help the renegade. New Avengers were led by Luke Cage. There's a famous issue where he actually hides them with his sorcery uh, from the authorities. Now, as, as we've mentioned, he was not always the Sorcerer Supreme. He didn't begin as the Sorcerer Supreme, and in recent Marvel history, he briefly lost that mantle to Brother Voodoo, who became Dr. Voodoo, the Sorcerer Supreme. That was a very brief series. I want to say five or six issues. I think it was exactly five. Is that Rick Remender? It was. And, and then I know to your chagrin, Murd, they, they later killed Brother Voodoo off or yeah. Dr. Voodoo. Yeah. I, I think he's come back since then. I want to say yes. Someone can confirm that on the forums. Um, and, of course, just to kind of catch us up, again, broad strokes, right now Dr. Strange is, is very much involved in the Secret Wars on Battleworld. I won't spoil what's going on if people haven't read. I know Smurd probably hasn't read those stories yet. Mm, I haven't. And I, they're very good. I recommend them. Just Marvel's having trouble getting out the latest issue. but um, And Strange uh, will be working closely with a Doctor Doom recast as the god of this battle world. So he's very much involved in those storylines. And we, you, know, if you can catch up on the issues of Secret Wars to see Strange's role there, which is very interesting. Now... Before we jump into some specifics, I also wanted to talk about – you've got to talk about the powers of Doctor Strange, his many skills, and his mystical patrons. Again, Doctor Strange calls upon various incredibly powerful mystical entities to cast his spells. Now, the main one is the triumvirate known as the Vishanti. Murd, begin. Ah, uh, yes, this mystical trinity – like many of the other um, magical, other-dimensional patrons upon whom Doctor Strange calls for aid, uh, they were mentioned before they were ever seen. Yes. Because Doctor Stanley basically made these names up extemporaneously. Magnificent. Meaning that he pulled them out of his, you know what. Yes. Uh, and then later on, either Lee or other writers uh, came along and took these uh, uh, randomly or, spon- or spontaneously composed names and uh, developed whole little characters around them, backstories. And in time, Doctor Strange actually uh, got to know the Vishanti personally, more or less. Um, yeah, I'm so they are actual mystical beings. Yes, yes. Uh, they, they were a triumvirate consisting of uh, Ashtur, the, um, the omnipotent, yeah. uh, Hori Hogoth, and the all-seeing Agamotto. Hori hosts of Hogoth. Exactly, as in. Uh, usually manifested themselves as a, a lady, an old man, and either like a, a big tiger or a caterpillar, respectively. Terrific. 
Yeah, and Agamotto was the one who seemed to like Doctor Strange the most and was mm-hmm. most willing to go out of his way to help him. Because after all, he is using Agamotto's eye yes. and his orb. Yes. And there's also the uh, the Octessence, uh, which is eight mystical beings. Mm-hmm. And among those ones that you mentioned, uh, is it Sidorak? Either Sidorak or Sidorak, yes. but Sidorak sounds better to me. And Watum. Yes, right. as in the winds of what? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, uh, since we're talking of these guys, yeah. uh, you mentioned uh, the Amazing Spider-Man number, annual number two, yes. and the recurring team uh, partnership between yes. Spidey and Doctor Strange mm-hmm. and the good chemistry they have. More often than not, it seems that when those two characters get together, they're going up against a bad guy named Zandu, who first appeared in that annual. Yes. And he is fixated on the Wand of Watum. The Wand of Watum. Which yeah. uh, kind of looks like a baby's rattle with <laughs> a couple of stylized... It's like a little handle with little stylized uh, devil's head on either yes. side and if you he who wields the wand of Watum can summon the wondrous winds of Watum <laughs> and yeah Zandu those sonorous just, tones ladies and gentlemen gives me chills yeah so Zandu's this petty little conjurer who just can't get over this sort of edible fixation he has <laughs> on this little little rattle thing that he loves so much and it, it seems that when Doctor, Doctor Strange and Spidey team up more often than not that's the guy who's at the center of it uh, so there's another villain that we can throw in there and other members of the Octessence. Uh, we've, we've said Cytorak and Watum. I Watoom. think Satanish is, is a member of it? Um, he, no? he isn't, but uh, okay. I'm glad you mentioned that. Blink. He's a pretty major Mar- Marvel Universe demon. And, and he calls uh, call on him sometimes for powers. He has. He yeah, the strange... Uh, uh, Satanish is the guy with the big uh, ram's horns. And yes. The big green guy. He's got a mouth in the middle of his stomach. Yes. <laughs> yeah, one of Strange's old friends, um, uh, Dr. Charles Benton, was a, a cultist in service to Satanish. And uh, he first appeared, actually, in number 174 of Strange Tales. Or, no, sorry, Doctor Strange. By then it had been retitled Doctor Strange. But, yeah, so that's another important Marvel Universe figure that came to our knowledge through Doctor Strange. But he was not a member of the Octessence. That's right. Okay. That's right. Because um, uh, there was a story called The Eighth Day that crossed over through uh, a few different titles. I think it was The Avengers and Thor and maybe Spider-Man in the late 90s. I dimly recall that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when uh, the Octessence was first gathered together as a group. And uh, they... uh, they named exemplars to wield their objects of power. Uh, Sidorak was the one who had he, – he had had his own agent, his own exemplar for years in the person of the Juggernaut. Ah, yes. But then all the others chose their own and uh, took direct control of them too, whereas Kurt Marco as the Juggernaut has, al- has always er, – sorry, Kane Marco. Yes. Kurt Marco's his uh, father. Kane <laughs> Cain Marco's always been his own man, pretty much, but uh, these other exemplars of these different mystical beings, Watum and Ragador and Ichthalon and Faltine and Valtor and uh, Balthac and so on, uh, they were directly controlled, pretty much, by their... uh, by their uh, patrons, and uh, they were sort of having a little battle amongst themselves. And they, well, they they wanted to get Juggernaut to come on board with them, and they couldn't proceed with their plans to take over the world until he did. And of course, heroes showed up and uh, defeated them. But he gave us a little more development of these uh, these mystical entities who came into being simply by uh, Stanley making up baby words, which he did magnificently. He certainly did. I mean, we we have to emphasize that clearly Ditko was was. A, a main movie here when it came to Doctor Strange, but you can't undersell Lee's dialogue, and especially you said those incantations, because that gives so much. There's so, it gets so much vivid life to the Strange character, just what he says when he's casting his spells. Um, the Eye of Agamotto. Now, when you think of Strange as sort of his adornments, his his sort of trappings of office, so to speak. 
you think of that and you think of the cloak of levitation, of course. Absolutely. And the Eye of Agamotto, now Strange wears it uh, at his throat essentially, mm-hmm. but when he wants to use it, it travels up. It levitates to his forehead. Right. Opens up. It's, it's a great image. <laughs> and uh, you can see why psychonauts were totally into this book in the 1960s. <laughs> and uh, it would reveal sort of the true, like, essence and identity of a person. So you, you can't hide from the eye of Agamotto, like, who you – like, your true self and who you are. And uh, the cloak of levitation, the classic red cloak with the, the gold board. And we should mention, by the way, in Doctor Strange's first appearance, he does not have the cloak of levitation. This is so. He has just a plain old purple cloak. He, and he's got the, the classic blue sort of tunic with the sash. And I always thought this was one of, the, one of Ditko's greatest touches. They, they don't use it all the time, the, like the sort of orange gloves with like the black spangles on it that seem to almost move essentially. Yeah, those weird little spots. Yeah. That sort of... And, uh, you know, the cloak comes later. I think the cloak is given to him by the Ancient One, actually, if I remember correctly. Um, but the cloak of levitation, which is – it almost is sentient in, in a sense. You kind of get that impression. And uh, it serves him. It, that's what allows him to fly, mm-hmm. essentially. Yep. In uh, The Oath, uh, Marcos Martin draws it uh, kind of slinking around. Yes, and, almost uh, like it has a mind of yeah, its own. Yeah, it's kind of like the flying carpet in Disney's yes. Aladdin. Now, some of Strange's powers, probably his most famous power is astral projection. And uh, Murd, I, I just – we'll talk about this in a moment. I, I just – I couldn't – I didn't have time to watch the whole thing because I just got it from a customer. Thanks, Larry. Uh, <laughs> this, mor- this morning, but it's the classic 1978 Doctor Strange television film. <laughs> and I just kind of was skipping through scenes to just get a sense of it. I, I was enthralled. It was vintage oh, 1970s. But that is some good cheese. There's a scene where the, the, the movie's version of the ancient watch, which is just this old white man basically, but he – Encourages strange. I don't know if he's to either actually project or just kind of travel through dimensions. Boy, I mean, just talk about psychedelia. I mean, it is, it is just him kind of like floating through different spangled colors. Probably got somebody who designed light effects for a local disco to or do for, it, or was what worked on two thousand one. But it's it's a scream. Um, so, of course, in the comic, Strange can leave his body for up to twenty four hours. And, you know, the, the, the classic Dicko imagery of, of sort of the transparent Doctor Strange flying around in other dimensions, other parts of the Earth, while his body is left in his, in his sanctum, essentially. And that he often has used that many times as sort of like his escape hatch, essentially, something he can do when uh, he needs to sort of protect himself or, or leave his body so he can still carry on the fight, something like that. Um, Strange can project uh, protective shields, and he calls upon the mystical being Seraphim uh, for those shields. That's something you see as a reoccurring uh, application of his power. Of course, he can project energy blasts like any good Marvel sorcerer. Uh, he can manipulate the elements. He can travel through dimensions, which, he, which Ditko – I mean Ditko's it, – it's, it's, I can't even put it to justice in words. I mean I think for me some of his greatest artwork – and the signature Ditko is in Doctor Strange because the dimensions he creates, like when he first goes to the dark dimension, there's this multi-limbed sort of cyclops-like beast kind of – I forgot the name of the being – kind of crouching over the entrance with the different arms. And uh, could that be the Goranthic Guardian possibly? Murph, with your memory, I'm sure you're probably right. Uh, I'm not placing any bets on myself but here. It's, but it's a captivating uh, Ditko image. Uh, and of course, Strange can also manipulate time. Uh, and through his, his – his, uh, Master of the Mystical Arts, like the Ancient One, Doctor Strange is essentially immortal. Uh, more than once they've kind of mentioned in, in sort of the, 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 the back material that he's really a very – quite old. 
but he looks like he's kind of always in his 40s, essentially. And uh, although his body must be nourished like any other, he has to eat and, you know, and drink water and so forth. Um, and, and he can be harmed physically, like you know, in the, in the oath he shot, for example. Um, but otherwise, because of, of, of who he is, he, he, he's virtually immortal, as was the mm -hmm. Ancient One. Yep. Uh, before him. In the 1990s Guardians of the Galaxy series, uh, we see that Doctor Strange is actually still alive in the 31st century, and he's the new ancient one. That's right, I forgot about that. Mm -hmm. Murd, clutch hitting as always. Now, we should mention uh, just some great, before we kind of get into some, some specific storylines and eras, Doctor Strange doesn't have the same sort of pop culture presence for now <laughs> as uh, Spider-Man would, for example, or Captain America. But he's had some great moments in the Silver Age. As Murd mentioned, uh, sort of the, the – one of the great sort of uh, uh, lights of the new journalism, right, as they call it, of the, the 1960s is Tom Wolfe, who write Bonfire, wrote Bonfire of the Vanities, for example. And he wrote uh, the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test in 1968, and I think he mentions Doctor Strange. He absolutely does. And Ken Casey, who was an, an advocate of uh, – LSD and, and psychonautical exploration. Uh, yeah, sort of the uh, uh, the sacramental use of same. Yes, they, yes, he was sort they of certainly uh, insurrectionist would it, and would be uh, movement leader. Very much a, a fixture of the counterculture, and uh, you know they would reference Doctor Strange, Tom, because Roy Thomas knew Tom Wolfe, and Tom Wolfe actually appears in Doctor Strange 180 uh, during the legendary Thomas Colin run on that book, mm. and uh, the Pink Floyd album cover. A Saucer Full of Seconds, 1968, Doctor Strange appears on the cover of that record. That I did not know. Yes. I mean, I'm, they couldn't get away with that today because of copyright, but Marvel probably didn't mind the exposure back then, so he, he appears on the album cover. Because we have to remember that Ditko gets into heavy psychedelic artwork in Doctor Strange, and, and there's, a, there's a great story where I've heard Roy Thomas recount that read it in interviews where – you know, fans would write in saying, you know, are, are Lee and Dicko dropping acid? Like people were like, – Strange definitely had a cult following both in the counterculture and like sort of the college scene. Mm. And people assume that – and if you know anything about Steve Ditko, he did not use drugs. <laughs> yes, I've heard another anecdotal yeah. account where a couple of fans uh, went up to him and thanked him for turning them on to drugs because they assumed that's what – and they knew that that's not at all what Ditko had in mind. So yeah. they, they were kind of having fun with him. I don't think they even used drugs, in fact, these fans. And, and Ditko was uh, flabbergasted apparently. It never even occurred to him that yeah. uh, this, uh, these stories of his could be taken in the context of drug abuse or drug culture. And he said, oh, no, no, we, we never intended any of that. Yeah. <laughs> kind and, of uh, and fairly straight-laced. Yeah, well, we, we've talked in our Spider-Man spotlights back in 2012 about – more about Steve Ditko and how he applies Ayn Rand's objectivist philosophy to his life and, you know, how that dictated his approach to his work. I mean, he'll leave, he'll leave Marvel in 1966, so he leaves both Spider-Man and Doctor Strange characters he, at the very least, co-created. So that, that'll end his run on the book. But again, if you really want to sink your teeth into Doctor Strange, you have to start with the lead Ditko stuff. Now, Ditko, for example... I, I was looking forward to Murd, you know, waxing rhapsodic on this. In issue 138, he in introduces Eternity. Ah, yes. Murd, hold forth, please. Eternity is nothing less than the embodiment, the personification of the entire physical universe and all life therein. We are all but tiny cells within the form of Eternity. And Eternity in the Marvel Universe takes the form, can take the anthropomorphic form of 
a man. Yes, a huge humanoid it's shape wearing a disco. sweeping cloak, high back, uh, with uh, planets and star fields visible within its, it's sweeping it's folds. Disco. And there's sort of a bluish human face up there someplace. And I have in my possession, thanks to you, Chris, one of those uh, old uh, sort of black light uh, mini posters yes. or uh, greeting card-sized yeah. images of eternity. eternity. Not even of Doctor Strange, but of eternity well, himself. Well, when, when I picked this up from my old friend and comic book dealer, Mike Williams, at one of John Paul's shows, NewJerseyComicBookShows.com. Got to check him out. Best shows in the, in the United States. 20 years running. Um, he had those. Now, that black light stuff is so hard to find. The posters, because th- those were just like the greeting cards. The posters go for big money if you can even find one intact. Mm. It's one of my one of my few pop culture comic quests is to get my hands on one of those posters. Um, but we, I, I save one of the greeting cards for you and one for myself. I have one uh, with Strange wearing his brief, his brief blue mask period. Oh, yes. <laughs> against a psychedelic background just – Calling out, you know, eternity. So it's, uh, you can see how these trippy elements really sort of turned on uh, psychonauts, essentially, in, in, the, in the late 1960s. Lee, uh, Ditko actually leave the book. Uh, his last issue is issue 140, 146, where actually Clea finally gets her name. It took that long. Yeah, so she first appears in issues 126 and 127. She doesn't get her name until issue 146. So... Now I'm seeing here that uh, Bill Everett is the first person yes. to succeed Ditko. After Ditko leaves, um, you've got all great artists. You've got Bill Everett does some some work. The wonderful Marie Severin, who was a Marvel mainstay of the Marvel bullpen. Mm-hmm. Marie Severin drew, inked, colored. She had a tremendous sense of humor. If you ever seen some of her, they had them in a lot of the Tomorrow's publications, and they, they did a wonderful whole Tomorrow's book on Marie Severin. They had an issue uh, where they show – she would do these cartoons in the office lampooning various bullpenners like Roy <laughs> Thomas. They're, they're precious. Um, in fact, I remember there's an interview where Gil Kane saw one of her characters of him, and she just said, and, you know, she leaves me with no illusions. So she was a master caricaturist. Also, uh, a Reading native, native, Dan Atkins. Did pencil work on Doctor Strange yep, uh, in sort of this, this transitional period, yep, essentially. One of the characters uh, for which he's best remembered. Now, Mert, issue 157 of Strange Tales introduces the Living, Living Tribunal. Tribunal. Please yes, hold forth. Absolutely. And so, and he, that was one of the Marie Severn issues, too. So she came up with this very distinct visual, distinctive Kudos visual. Kudos to her. Uh, so he manifests himself as a uh, yellow skinned humanoid with a, a bright. Uh, well, sort of like a star cluster or a, some kind of source of great light, some sort of yes. Lucifer in his chest. And uh, then no neck, but hovering above his shoulders is a three-faced head uh, wearing a purple shroud. Awesome. One face is completely uh, revealed, the other one completely obscured, the other one with uh, the veil halfway over his head, over his face, down to about the nose level. And uh, so he's uh, a three-in-one, and uh, he is uh, a tremendously powerful cosmic being who is set over just about all of creation. There are... Virtually no beings in any version of reality that can uh, trifle with the living tribunal. And he represents balance, order, and law set down from an even higher plane, the implied uh, monotheistic god of the Marvel Universe. Um, Only implied, never stated. And uh, so he is the one who settles cosmic disputes between cosmic beings uh, and also between cosmic beings and lower forms of life like uh, human magicians, for example. So yes, he's one. Of the, he's the, the ultimate authority of the land, uh, as for in the Marvel universe. And we should emphasize, thank you, my friend, that these these Silver Age Doctor Strange stories they have 
they have an epic cosmic grandeur to them because you're, you're, we're dealing with concepts that you can imagine readers of the time that must have had their minds blown just with Ditko's artwork and some of the – like the, the concept of eternity. And that's right up there you know, with, with Kirby doing Galactus. I mean these, these are – these, these are not, quote, supervillains. These are you know, inherent essences of the cosmos. Like these, these, are, these are part of the order of things essentially. And that's, that's what I think really separated Marvel at that time because they were really you know, exploring concepts that comics really hadn't done. Yeah, like they were that. playing with conceptual yeah. deities here basically, not, not just the uh, kind that uh, can – Put on a cape and throw a hammer in your face like right. Thor. A different kind of, of god, if you will, these cosmic beings. Something that, as you say, Chris, really hadn't been seen in comics too much. Certainly not in superhero comics. Yep. And Starlin would, of course, come along oh. later and uh, add a whole lot more to the, this uh, sort of New Age That's pantheon. a whole other episode. My god. I love Starlin. Um, I actually met him. My wife, Keiko, when she lived in Saugerties, New York, she worked at a, uh, a, a wonderful cafe, uh, the Bistro, it's called. It's called in uh, Kingston, New York, and uh, he lived in the area, and he came in once, and I was just waiting for him. I was having lunch, and I just went up to him and just thanked him for his work. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have my Death of Captain Marvel graphic novel for him to sign. But <laughs> well, um, I'm very glad you did that, Chris. You know, Jamie would approve. Well, he's so, such a master creator. Um, issue 169, they retell his origin uh, – Roy Thomas and Dan Atkins. Mm -hmm. And this is the first issue of Doctor Strange yes. as such. This is the, the set that the, he gets his own book now. They right. take Strange Tales. They keep the numbering, which right. they would do back then. And, and they, Strange Tales, number 169, is the first appearance of? Oh, God. Forgive me. Brother Voodoo. Oh, God. So he pops up at the same time Doctor Strange wait, finally wait, gets his own Brother Voodoo book. appears in the Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, this is uh, – well, I have the cover date here. Uh, oh, when they, well, you're right. When they resuscitate the Strange Tales masthead, that's what you're saying, right? Oh, right, right, because right, there was which in the 70s. a period of time when there was no Strange no Tales strange, at all. They brought it back. That's right. Well done, sir. Now, issues 172 to 183 for me is, is one of the great runs in the history of Doctor Strange. This is the Roy Thomas, Gene Colan, Tom Palmer era. And there's two things I love about this, this era. First of all, the obvious one is it's Gene Colan and Tom Palmer drawing Doctor Strange. And what I loved about Colan's take is Colan didn't try to make it Ditko-esque. He did it Gene Colan's way. So you have a different interpretation of Strange. You, you don't get – you no one else can do Ditko that way, like the otherworldly dimensions and, you know, bodies separating, appearing in different dimensions and, you know, the – Colin takes more of like – for my, for my, in my book, he goes more of a sort of a, like a, a black magic route, like a lot of fog and, and, and smoke and – you know, everybody looks so real when Gene Colin – like Clea is just eye-popping. But she looks like she could be a real woman. I mean it, it's, that, it's that approach. And uh, what Thomas does that I think is wonderful, as much as I love the Ditko – Lee Ditko material – I don't find Doctor Strange very relatable in those stories the way you do the other Marvel heroes. He's very removed in many ways, and his dialogue – and I'm not complaining because I love it – but his dialogue, there's – I don't know if you want to use this, say there's a stiffness to it, but he, he talks in sometimes that very kind of stereotypical sorcerer-type way. Thomas maintains the, the awe and the mysticism, but – he makes him more like someone you could actually imagine as a person. And like he really explores – he and Clea will go out on dates, for example, because hmm. like, she's trying to learn about this new world that she's living in, and he's trying to introduce her to that. 
you know, and, you know, it's Gene Colan. So, you know, who, who draws sweaters better than Gene Colan? <laughs> Nobody does. So, you know, when the late 60s, when Dr. Strange appears, little turtleneck. <coughs> Sorry, everybody, I'm getting over a cold. Um, you know, you feel how comfortable that sweater is. I mean, that's, that's pure Gene Colan. And, uh, you know, they have a, it's, it's just a wonderful run. It, it's because it, it just blends the mysticism and the grandeur with there's, there's a, there's a down to earth element because, you know, Thomas really gets into Strange's developed relationship with Clea, his relationship with Wong. I mean, it's, it's all there and it's, it's that Colin Palmer artwork. It's just stunning. Um, and, and those stories have all been reprinted, uh, in the Marvel essentials. And I, I imagine they've, been, they've probably done a masterwork. I'm not sure, but I imagine that by this point they have. And, uh, if you're a fan of Dr. Strange, these, these are mandatory reading. I just think it's a wonderful balance. Now, the book didn't, wasn't around that long. Thomas read it in one of his interviews. He said, you know, look, we're only selling about 40% of our print run. Now, if a book sold 40% of its print run today, they'd, they'd have a parade. Um, <laughs> but So he was still selling probably, I think he said something like 100,000 or 150,000 copies. But, uh, you know, that was considered a low seller back then. Um, uh, it, it, may, it may have been more than that. I don't remember. But for whatever it was, it was six figures, but it was a low seller. Um, so... The book was canceled. Mm-hmm. Um, Lasted 14 issues here, number 183 being the last. And did you want to add anything to that, Myrna? I don't want to um, here. Well, you, you mentioned the blue mask in passing a little while yes. ago. This is really more a, a question than uh, another declamation on my part here. But uh, um, did you remember why yes. Doctor Strange decided to wear that well, blue I'll tell face you, mask? Here's why they actually did it. Because I just read an interview with Roy Thomas. I refreshed myself a couple days ago. To try to boost sales, they wanted to make him appear more super heroic, so to speak. So they gave him the mask. In the story itself, I want to—I—I—I'm not remembering clearly. I want to say there may have been someone, a doppelganger, pretending to be him. Oh, I could be wrong about that. I think he wore the mask. It may have come out of that, and also possibly just to further conceal his identity. Uh, but those are educated guests on my part. I know. I know. In terms of the backstory, in terms of the business side of it, and then the, in terms of Marvel Comics itself, they're trying to boost sales, trying to make him appear more like a quote superhero, mm. essentially. Right. But the mask was only around for a brief time. But but right, the, number one seventy seven was its first appearance. Yes, and the book ended in issue one eighty three. Right. But the black light card I have, he's wearing that mask, <laughs> which is cool. And screaming eternity. I just think of like Heston screaming, "It's a madhouse!" At the end of the <laughs> I don't know. It just made me think of that. But you uh, yeah, but it's uh, again, it's just it's a very brief error in his history where he wears that mask. But if you're a Doctor Strange fan, and you know it, like it's just it's a blue sort of skin tight mask that, mm-hmm. that you see his eyes, as notice his mouth, but you you can't recognize right. who it is. It covers his entire head. You yep. see no hair, no mustache. Just kind of looks a bit like Iceman or the Silver Surfer, yes. I guess. But again, that, that's a, that's sort of a brief flirtation with that. Yeah, and there, there have been a few nods to it over the years. Yes, there have been. And so that book ends with issue one eighty three. Mm-hmm. That's Doctor Strange Volume One. Yeah, and then there's a bit of a dry spell as far as yes, Doctor Strange is. content goes, yeah. because between that issue and uh, well, when the Defenders get together in uh, nineteen seventy one, there's two years where there are no new Doctor Strange stories published. That's right. There's some reprints here and there, but. Uh, uh, yeah, no, no new Doctor Strange. Oh, did he have any guest appearances? Yeah, he time? did. Yeah, I'm seeing here he was in Amazing Spider-Man number 109, Enter Doctor Strange. I remember that issue. That, that's a Ramita Senior issue. It's beautiful. Yep. In right. fact, that's probably one of his few actual guest appearances in that that sort of nether period between the books. Now, now we're going to move on as we enter the Bronze Age. 
Marvel premiere. He appears in issues 3 through 14. Stan Lee writes a couple of the early ones. I think Barry Windsor Smith does an early one. He does, yeah. Uh, and then they, they bring back, and again, this is always to Marvel's credit. They would try to find work for some of the, the mainstays when they end their career, Gardner Fox. Right. Because um, yeah, I think he wrote a few early issues of Tomb of Dracula around the same he did. time. And he's, he's scripting. This is the early 70s. Um, let me actually look at my essential here to see. Uh, yes, here we go. So you've got uh, Stan Lee did a couple. Uh, mm-hmm. Barry Windsor Smith, as you said, yeah. did that first story in number three with Stan the Man. Yes, you've got Roy Thomas and Archie Goodwin doing some plotting and scripting. Yep. Gardner Fox, the Marvel premiere, five, six, seven, and eight. Uh, those are drawn by various people Frank Brunner, Irv Wesley, Mike Esposito. I'm sorry, P. Craig Russell, forgive me, Mike Esposito inked, and Jim Starlin. Now, in terms of the character's history, though, what, this is an important moment. Marvel premiere number nine is the first, is the debut of the team of Steve Englehart and Frank Brunner. Ladies and gentlemen, this stuff is mind blowing. Now, I just read an interview with Englehart, and he freely admitted that, yes, we were experimenting with some drugs. Um, <laughs> you know, look, it was the. You know, the early 1970s, so sometimes, you know, we'd, we'd light up a joint and talk about do- plotting Doctor Strange. It's nice to have verification of this um, for a change. Somebody and, willing to go on the record. Yeah, I read it in, in uh, which one? I read it in uh, Comic Book Artist. Actually, let me out here. The late great comic book artist, uh, issue 18 from February 2002. From Tomorrow's Publishing. Yes, I mean, this magazine is no longer published, but just a phenomenal uh, look back at... Uh, a lot of the creators and characters, uh, especially in, in the Silver and Bronze Age and through. I mean, back issues kind of picked up a, a lot of this, this type of material. But if you can find these these magazines in, in, in back bins, I highly recommend Comic Book Artist. Uh, I want to say, who was the editor? Was it John Cook? Uh, yes, John B. Cook was the editor. Wonderful magazine. And uh, actually, let me find the uh, – I, I should quote it specifically. Um when uh, Engelhardt talks about uh, his work on Doctor Strange. All right. Let me uh, throw out a couple of Please, uh, while trivia looking. here while, while you're looking. Thank you, sir. Um, yes, as you said, uh, issue number five uh, was scripted by Gardner F. Fox, who was best known for his DC Comics work, but in the early 70s uh, found his way over to Marvel and was given a few assignments. He created Red Wolf while he was there, for example, and he did that Tomb of Dracula stuff we were just yes. talking about. Uh, and uh, that issue number five was actually the first... Uh, the story is called... Uh, uh, the Lurker in the Labyrinth. And it's the first time that uh, Doctor Strange actually in- encountered, uh, more or less personally, uh, the Vishanti. Oh. So Ashtur, Hogoth, and That's Frank Brunner artwork. I believe you're right oh. there. You no, know, it's Irv Wesley, oh, it's actually. It's Irv Wesley, okay. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Brunner doesn't come on until a few issues after that. Yeah. But this is in the middle of a little uh, arc here in, in Marvel Presents. So it touched off, actually, by in, in issue four, which was co-written by so Archie Marvel Goodwin. Marvel Premiere you're talking about, right? Uh, did I say? You said Presents. I'm sorry, Marvel Premiere. Yes, yes. thank you. Uh, issue number four uh, touched off kind of a mini arc in dealing with, um, well, Elder God type stuff, uh, loosely inspired by Lovecraft, but more tightly inspired by Robert Howard. And we know that Roy Thomas had a strong love Pulp of Pulp Legend, of, the creator of, of that, Conan and yes. Yes, issue number four was titled The Spawn of Sligoth, I think. And so we've got some Cimmerian deities going on there. And uh, it's sort of uh, building to something that would uh, culminate during the Engelhart run um, when Doctor Strange encounters Shumagorath for the first time. 
Who is Shumagorath, just remind listeners? Uh, I don't know much about him. He's this big, massive, uh, sort of Lovecraftian elder god-looking yes. thing with one enormous eye in the middle <gasps> of his tentacular mass. <laughs> and uh, he's actually made a couple of appearances in other media, too. Shumagorath was used in a video game at one point. I didn't even know that. Oh, wow. Mert. So god, yeah, he's, he's a big gun. Now, okay, I found the quote. So the CBS Englehart, were there mind-altering situations that aided you guys in experiencing epiphanies? And he says, yes, there were. As I said, we were young and creative in New York. We were in our 20s, getting paid to do fantasy, and it was the 70s. So, yes, it's not even really a secret, but there were definitely times we'd get together for dinner and usually smoke a joint, and we'd start talking about Doctor Strange. That's how we did that book. Now, this arc, uh, the uh, uh, the Englehart Brunner run on Doctor Strange. So, once again, their, their first work on the book together... I think I want to say it's issue nine. Yes, it's issue nine. And they do issues nine through 14. And then, and then they're going to relaunch Doctor Strange Volume 2. And many people are filmed. This is a very famous cover from the Marvel Bronze Age, where Doctor Strange is kind of floating with his arms sort of up above his head. He's shooting force bolts at some kind of, I think, entity that's attacking him or something like that. In fact, I have it on my chest right here as a shirt. Well, I, was just, I totally forgot I'm wearing the shirt <laughs> from the wonderful True Vintage Company. And, uh, yep, if we were doing this as a vidcast, everyone could see it. Yep, Doctor Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts, number one, 25-cent cover. And, yep. and, uh, June head, 1974. Yep. Fabulous first issue, It Lurks Within the Crystal Ball. And uh, Frank Brunner is one of the, for me, he's one of the all-time great artists of the Bronze Age. And uh, he's, he's very well known for his work on Doctor Strange. And he and Englehart really pursue the mysticism, uh, the, the cosmic elements, the black magic. Uh, they, they really do a lot with just what it means to be this sorcerer and uh, various entities he, he comes into contact with. There's even references to essentially to a, to a god, so to speak. Uh, it's heady stuff, and uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, I haven't read all of it. The artwork alone, it's worth looking at. The Frank Brunner, Doctor Strange, his, his Clea is, is, is just stunning. Um, and we should also mention that Doctor Strange's costume changes throughout these years. So, for example, when we first see him with Ditko, he's just got, he's got the famous tunic and the sash and the orange gloves of the black spangles, no cloak of levitation. Um, Brunner will show him in kind of, the, let's say, the classic costume, which is like the blue leggings the blue tunic, the cloak of levitation, the orange gloves. Later on in the 80s, they have them sometimes with like, like sort of black pants and the blue tunic and the, the gloves and the lev cloak of levitation. Um, but the Englehart Brunner stuff is, 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 is pivotal Doctor Strange stories. And, I mean, when, if you want to – I mean, I know Myrtle appreciates this. If you want to immerse yourself in just how Bronze Age comics feel – just that 70s feel, <laughs> these are books you have to read. Yeah, baby. Um, and for those psychonauts out there, not that I'm you know, condoning drug use, but you're going to love these books. So it's great stuff. Anything you want to add about the Marvel premiere? Um, uh, one important fact is Please. that uh, the Ancient One finally perishes. He does. In this story, yes. deep in the cavern, the crypts of Ka'u. <laughs> <laughs> in battle with Shumagorath, who is yes. uh, attempting to use the Ancient One's uh, body as uh, a portal to get into um, the, the Marvel Universe. 
but uh, Doctor Strange, at the Ancient One's uh, urging, uh, kills his physical body. And he definitely becomes the Sorcerer Supreme. Right. Um, because his, his forerunner, the uh, previous holder of the title, is now no longer yes. on the physical plane. But, of course, Obi-Wan Kenobi style, uh, the Ancient One yes, is still yes, accessible yes. to Doctor Strange in spirit form after that. But, yeah, so that's Shumagorath and the death of, uh, of the Ancient One in Marvel premieres number 9 and 10. And that is the Engelhart Brunner stuff right, right in the middle of it. Now, the, the Doctor Strange Volume 2, which is issues 1 through 81, 1974 to 1987, there's a real – because this is a book that begins very much in the heart of the 70s, and you have that wonderful Engelhart Brunner feel, and then they, they eventually will leave the book. And as time passes uh, and you, you enter the 1980s, the book takes on a different tone, but it's still a tone that I find very compelling. Um, this is where we get start to get into the Roger Stern era. For me, Roger Stern is one of the great comic book scribes of the 1980s. I think of his, his work on Amazing Spider-Man, his work on Avengers, his work on Superman. To me, he's a great. He's, a, he's a, one of the great writers of this era. And he also had a wonderful run on Doctor Strange. And this is where we're introduced to like the Sarah Wolf character, his business manager, uh, the Morgana Blessing supporting character is like another potential love interest for Strange. This is where Clea eventually will leave Strange because she feels that he, he really doesn't love he, – he, she feels that in his heart, even though he doesn't realize it, he actually is more destined to love Morgana Blessing rather than her. So she, she feels like to, to help him, she actually leaves him, which crushes him completely, and he should journey to the Dark Dimension to lead a rebellion against Umar, who at that point is in control of the Dark Dimension. And these stories are especially wonderful because like Thomas, Stern really tries to make Doctor Strange a relatable person. And having the Sarah Wolf character there, having Wong there and their interactions and him try acting both as a hero and as a cult expert and a, and a defender of Earth against other dimensions, Stern bounces all that wonderfully. And uh, for me, one of the highlights – and I, I just read a big stretch of that run I showed you at RetroCon. I was reading some of those books. Um, they're wonderful. And these back issues are not expensive. We have a lot of our bargain bins at Wild Pick Comics. I really would seek out the, uh, the Roger Stern era of uh, Doctor Strange in the 1980s. Uh, you've got Marshall Rogers, who's another classic artist mm. who's known for his Batman work, who did wonderful Doctor Strange work. Uh, you've, and you've got Paul Smith, who I'm a huge fan of, who just draws some stunning work working with Roger Stern and Doctor Strange at this time. Uh, one thing I want to emphasize, one trade that might still be in pretty much sure is Doctor Strange versus Dracula, the Montesi formula. And it encapsulates two stories uh, first, Doctor Strange uh, 14 and Tomb of Dracula 44, a crossover. Doctor Strange 14, Engelhart writing, Colin Palmer rendering. Boom! <laughs> and then, again, the class – I mean, Tomb of Dracula means one of the all-time great Bronze Age series. Oh, yes. That's the Wolfman, Colin Palmer team. I mean, what more needs to be said? That's an early Doctor Strange interaction with Dracula. The artwork is, is – it's awe-inspiring. And then, of course, we get to – I think one of the great Doctor Strange stories of all time, actually, for me. Doctor Strange 58 to 62. Roger Stern, the, the very able penciler Dan Green, a mainstay of the 1980s, inked by Terry Austin and Rick Magyar. And actually, issue, issue 62 is drawn by the great uh, Steve uh, Leolola. Is it Leoloa? Yeah. Okay. Um, these stories deal with where Marvel actually tries to sort of a punctuation on the, on the place of vampires in the Marvel Universe, 
and Strange becomes embroiled. The, the, old, the remaining vampire hunters from the Tomb of Dracula series, Blade the Vampire Hunter, Frank Drake, who's Dracula's one remaining living human descendant, who was a mainstay character of the Tomb of Dracula series. Mm, from the very beginning. Yes, and uh, Hannibal King, who was also introduced to Tomb of Dracula, who's a vampire, but he will not suck human blood, who's a private eye, a private detective. And working with the Scarlet Witch, they try to finally end the curse of Dracula forever because he's, he's resurrected again. And Mord, please exp- – I'm sorry, Mord, please explain. What is the Montesi formula and the Darkhold? Ah, the Darkhold is an ancient grimoire of, <laughs> of dark magic, probably the most powerful evil spellbook in the entire Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. It was written by the elder god Thon, oh. who slumbers beneath Wondergore Mountain in Transia. Home of the high evolutionary. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a sort of mysticism and uh, science meet on yes. Wondergore Mountain. It's a very interesting place in the Marvel Universe. Yes, it is. should be on any tour. <laughs> uh, so Thon, this, uh, this archdemon, created this book, and it's uh, the source of incredible mystical pain and suffering for humanity over the years. It, the origin of vampirism is just one of the many dark and evil yes. spells to be found in this Darkhold book. And the Montesi formula uh, was a magic spell that was designed to counteract this spell in the Darkhold, and uh, if recited, if performed, it would uh, destroy all vampires on Earth at the time of the incantation. And that's pretty much what Doctor Strange was uh, seeking to do. It's a great story. Uh, thank you, my friend. And uh, it really emphasizes that the Darkhold is so seductive and powerful, Strange himself can barely withstand having to apply its power uh, to... And there's a great battle between him and Dracula and the vampire hunters, and of course, ultimately he's able to summon the incantation. Of course, we all know Dracula eventually will return to the Marvel Universe. Yeah, there's, there's no killing Dracula. Uh, and in fact, again, I'll mention the wonderful Captain Britain in an MI-13 series. Oh, right, and the vampire Cornell, state. Which, which culminates in a tremendous uh, Dracula story where he tries to invade Britain. And uh, they actually bring in various Marvel supporting characters from uh, these, some of these titles we're talking about to, to try to combat uh, Dracula's invasion. It's a classic story. Should be in any bargain bins. It's in Wild Pig's bargain bins. Definitely pick that up. Now, uh, so again, the Stern, Paul Smith run, and, and, and Dan Green, and Marshall Rogers, it's all tremendous. That, that's, that's, I, think that, that, I believe that comic was bi-monthly, if I remember correctly, from reading the letters page in the 1980s. Uh, but it definitely had a cult following, and I think it's one of the stronger titles Marvel was publishing. Yeah, they tried it monthly from yeah. between issues 13 and 20, and then it just went bi-monthly again and uh, kind of stayed that way, I think. But uh, again, as I was rereading many of these stories or reading them for the first time, again, I was struck with how wonderful it was to appreciate the continuity of, that, of the Marvel 1980s, the 1980s era Marvel Universe because, again, it had only been around then for about 25 years. So it was a lot tighter, and you had those wonderful editorial uh, boxes, and you just felt like, all right, everything is so interacting so well here. And again, I, you know, it's just times have changed, and that's a bygone era because they just, they just don't really stick to that anymore. To the same degree, but it was just—it was so enjoyable uh, and, and refreshing to, to just kind of plunge into that world of my childhood again. And again, these stories really hold up. The '80s Doctor Strange is this strong Marvel comics, very well done. Anything you want to add there, Murd? Uh, well, let's see. The very first issue has the first appearance of uh, what I think is one of the more interesting minor Doctor you mean Strange. The volume movies. two, number one. Uh, what did I say? You said the first issue, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Okay. right. Of, of this uh, this series we're talking yeah. about, this is the volume two, which yeah. has the Doc, the Roger Stern run in right. it. Right. Uh, the first issue, it was still Englehart at that point, but uh, it, oh, yes. it had the first appearance of Silver Dagger, 
Um, right. Yes, he is. His real name is Isaiah Kerwin. He's a former Catholic priest, and he has uh, got an irrational mat on for sorcerers everywhere. <laughs> uh, he has learned uh, the art of sorcery, become a sorcerer, so that he can kill sorcerers. This is his aim. And uh, Doctor Strange is one such devil spawn that he's determined to exercise and expunge from the world, uh, w- with no success, of course. But he's got an arsenal of uh, mystical and mundane weapons at his command, and uh, uh, eventually he pisses off Doctor Strange to the extent that he just imprisons him inside Agamotto's dimension, inside the Orb of Agamotto, which is... Yeah, we've mentioned the Eye of Agamotto. Yes. The Orb of Agamotto is another one of Doctor Strange's magic tools, and it's just your standard crystal ball, pretty much. He keeps it inside of his uh, Sanctum Sanctorum, and uh, he, he puts the Silver Dagger in there so that Agamotto himself can uh, keep an eye on him. Well done, my friend. Yeah, so he's just an interesting motivation for a, a, a sorceress superhero's villain. And now have. we have to remind us how... How powerful Doctor Strange is, and if you mess with him, you're probably not going to end well. I mean, this is this is one of the most powerful beings in terms of humans in the Marvel Universe. I mean, he is the Sorcerer Supreme, so that, that has to be always emphasized. Uh, now, in terms of Volume 3, which is 1 through 90, 1988 to 96, I have to – I'll be honest. I'm not well-versed in this particular volume of Doctor Strange. Uh, well, we, we've got some stuff to cover before we, oh, please. Before we please get there. Oh, please. Go for it. Um, and yeah, and, and I can help you out with a 90s uh, volume of Strange because that's where I first uh, started oh, reading wonderful. the character actually. Um, so let's see. Other stuff that uh, we could mention about uh, the, the, that, the second volume. Uh, in number 48, Doctor Strange meets Brother Voodoo for the first time. Ah. That was in 1981. Uh, then there's Morgana Blessing. You mentioned her. Yes. Young adept, uh, brimming with mystic potential, and uh, Clea thinks that uh, she's meant to be Doctor Strange's... Uh, Paramore. So, yep. Yeah. And she has a cat. Yes. Yeah. The cat is named Magellan. Interesting story here. And one of the, his schemes against uh, Doctor Strange, Baron Mordo story, yeah. kills poor Magellan the cat yes. and uh, assumes his form. Yes. It, it, it takes his place. It's kind of Mordo even kills your own cat. Stooping pretty low there, <laughs> Mordo. Um, somewhere along the line, uh, oh yeah, in uh, Secret in uh, number seventy-four, there's a Secret Wars two crossover, which is more important than most Secret Wars two crossovers so? because Doctor Strange one. used it as an excuse to fake his own death. So this is one of a couple of different times when he uh, walked the Earth almost entirely alone, gave him an, an excuse to step out of his old mm. uh, civilian life and. Uh, uh, for, for reasons I don't entirely understand. But uh, by then, uh, Peter B. Gillis uh, was, okay. uh, was the writer of record of the series. Um, in number 75, Topaz, who, who was a gypsy sorceress who had been uh, a supporting character. Werewolf by Night. Yes, yes, exactly. In the Bronze Age, yeah. Yep, she became a supporting character in Doctor Strange's series. Um, and uh, then in number, uh, yeah, number 79, uh, this is like the last three issues of the series, which went to, num- went to number 81. Right. Uh, it was a three-part story uh, in which Doctor Strange went up against Urthona, who was like this uh, a monster mage from another dimension who coveted the title of uh, Sorcerer Supreme. So he shows up and has this uh, three-issue uh, bout with Doctor Strange. Gesundheit, <coughs> sir. It's building, ladies and gentlemen. <sighs> By the vapors of Valtor, that was a mighty, <laughs> mighty uh, sternutition. <laughs> I was trying to think of the fancy word for sneeze. Uh, but anyway, Urthona shows up and invades Doctor Strange's sanctum, and determined to uh, kill Doctor Strange, take his title, and also usurp all of his 
various magical artifacts. So Strange uh, trashes his own sanctum and uh, destroys or jettisons into another dimension just about all of his magic artifacts. Uh, it turns out that Agamotto, having Strange's back, uh, yes, saved always. most of them and held them in reserve for later on. But yes. this is one of those tear down the character to see right. what uh, well, his inner strength truly is. It's, it's an Iron Man 3 kind of story. Exactly. Uh, so uh, Doctor Strange then begins a kind of an extended period of his life when he is, uh, has to do without all of his usual trappings, his headquarters and his toys and his supporting cast and all of that. And it's thanks to this Earthona guy that he's without all of that. Uh, then in issue number 80, we're introduced to Rintra. <laughs> you remember Rintra, Chris? I'm, the name rings a bell. Yeah. He looks like a green-furred minotaur. Uh, he's from the alien world of Raval, and he's come to Earth uh, seeking, uh, I don't know, the help or guidance of Doctor Strange, I think. Eventually, he becomes Doctor Strange's official uh, apprentice. Uh, but uh, here, in, uh, at the very end of Doctor Strange Volume 2, he becomes Doctor Strange's uh, sole remaining friend and uh, traveling companion. Uh, as we uh, move from the end of Volume 2 of Doctor Strange to uh, the beginning of Volume 2 of Strange Tales. That's right. Yeah, which ran he had, from... He had a brief interlude there, that's right. Right, uh, from yeah, just a uh, year and a half, pretty much, from uh, April of 87 to uh, October of 88, 19 issues. But uh, m- much of that is taken up with Doctor Strange kind of wandering the earth, uh, believed dead by the public. Uh, I think he might even have cast a spell of forgetfulness to wipe out any uh, record of his existence mm-hmm. uh, or any memory of his existence. And so he's just wandering around uh, dealing with magical threats that are cropping up all over the world, some of which are fallouts of, of uh, his battle with Urthona. Uh, so, and he's do- while he's doing this, he's co-starring with Cloak and Dagger. It's like, a, it's like the original Strange Tales. Yes. It was a co-feature book. Not, not a, a run that I think is very memorable for, for most people. It, it's, it's not really. Um, there is one issue in that run where uh, the two features cross over. Issue number seven, Doctor Strange and Cloak and Dagger team up against Nightmare. And it's during uh, this run that uh, Strange meets Dr. Druid. I think it's their first meeting. I'm not ah. sure, but it's number 14. And actually, and actually call back to that sort of old history you're referring to, that sort of precursor history to the Marvel Universe. Uh, yeah, I don't know into how much detail they go because I haven't actually read the story, but I know that it, it, it happened at least in Strange Tales number 14. Um, and there was one more thing in this run that was of note. Oh, and uh, that Wong gets a, a new love interest. After Sarah Wolf was uh, coming on to him for so long, he meets Imei Chang. And uh, th- those two are actually together uh, in the 90s uh, Captain Doctor Strange series when I started reading it some years later. Uh, yeah, so that, uh, that was number 17. And the series uh, ends number 18, uh, number 19, sorry. And there uh, we go. That was in October of 88. And the very next month, Doctor Strange, Sorcerer Supreme, Doctor Strange Volume 3 begins. And what's your... What's your general sense? That, that's the time you're coming into reading comics, correct? Uh, yeah. Um, originally, well, for the first uh, four issues, it's the same uh, creative team. It's still Peter B. Gillis and artist Richard Case. And they were the art team for most of the Strange Tales Volume 2 run. Um, but then in issue number five, Roy and Dan Thomas. That's right. And then this, this, this is the creative team that defines Doctor Strange yes. for me. Uh, and uh, Jackson Butch Geis was That's the right. artist as of and issue number five. Thomas, too. of course, one of the all-time great Doctor Strange scribes. So. Right. 
and uh, just a, a, a long one, one of the first of the second generation of Marvel Comics creators, uh, one of the first comics fans yes. to rise through the ranks and become a creator. Absolutely. And it, it shows through in the best possible way in the work that he turned in over the decades. Uh, this is a series that I actually would like to collect in its entirety eventually, his run, because he's at pains to really gather up a bunch of loose ends that have been left by various other creators over the years, uh, continuity-wise, and, and bind them up cohesively. Which no one can do better than Roy Thomas. Yes, well, well yeah. Jeff Johns comes close, yes, but yeah, I, I think Roy Thomas is still, Roy the boy is still at the yes. top of the heap there, uh, because he's just got such a great geeky attention to detail, whereas Jeff Johns fudges the facts sometimes. To and plus Thomas, you know, when he's invested in a character, you, 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 you feel that passion on the page. You, you, you know how much... His golden age, his golden age romance, is the best example of that. The loving devotion he's given to those characters through his whole career, mm. like an All Star Squadron, for example. Oh yes, so prime example. The fact that he's returned to a, a character that he cut his writing eye teeth on earlier in his career in the Silver Age, in this case, Doctor Strange. I, and you know what? I have not read those that run. None so, of it. Not really. So that's something I'm going to get for myself. I'm sure I have some of them in the shop. But what's your overall impression of it? Um, well. Uh, he's trying hard to um, map out uh, more, uh, uh, more, more, more coherently, more cohesively, um, the, the place of magic in the Marvel Universe. Um, almost from go, uh, he establishes a series of backup stories, which were called uh, Tales from the Book of the Vishanti. <laughs> which is another one of Doctor Strange's uh, magic gimmicks. Yes. Uh, it's a, a, a book that's it's kind of like Destiny's book from like the Destiny of the Endless in the DC universe. Um, but uh, these backup stories cover a wide range of topics. Uh, let's see, there was a... What was it called? Uh, the, okay, the Mordo Chronicles. Uh, I think this was the first of these Tales of the Vishanti ser- series, which tells us a little bit more about uh, Baron Mordo and his uh, background. Uh, there was a series about vampirism in the Marvel Universe. Uh, the, well, Curse of the Darkhold was what it was actually called. So it gives us the history of the Darkhold remember, book yeah. and also of vampirism in the Marvel yeah. Universe. There were a couple of issues about, uh, Mark, about uh, voodoo. Uh, so we've got uh, the backstory of Brother Voodoo right. and a couple of other b- voodoo-based characters. Um, uh, so so the, the, sometimes these tied – most of the time they tied in directly to what was going on in the uh, front – like the main feature, yes. the main story of the issue. But it's just uh, the, the further attention to historical detail that uh, Roy Thomas always brings uh, to um, these things. Me, how long did he write this, this third volume? Uh, he came on at issue number five and stuck with it through uh, shortly after issue 50. Oh, I thought that's quite a run then. Okay. Yep, and, uh, and we should uh, give credit to his wife, Danette, as well, because she, Dan Thomas, was also... She co-plots with him often. Right, so yeah, yeah. she was credited as co-writer for almost all of that run. Well, that's... I, have, I really haven't read much of that run, but if it's Roy Thomas, I'm telling you right now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to well, be in my shop on Sunday and see what we have in our bins, and I'm going to start grabbing that stuff, because honestly, there's... I haven't read all of Roy Thomas's work. I've read a lot of it. I've yet to read something by him that I haven't enjoyed, at least to some degree. So, and plus, as one of the great sort of caretakers of the history of the American comic book through the Alter Ego magazine, I mean, the guy is such a valuable resource. Remember when Pants is talking about when he's at that show in Connecticut and hearing Roy Thompson and Jerry uh, Orway discuss, you know, All Star Squadron, and uh, he, you can't overstate how important he is, um, both as, a, as, a, as an editor, a, a, a fan, a creator, and an historian. Right. So, represents an important stage in the evolution of the relationship between fan and creator, exactly. and he's just a darn good writer, as yes, he's already said. Besides that, um, so yeah, and he took uh, 
he took pains to also connect Doctor Strange a little more to goings on in uh, mm. the Marvel, the broader Marvel universe too. Whereas uh, creators like uh, say Gillis and Engelhart were kind of doing their own thing, Doctor Strange going off into strange new worlds all on his own. Yes. Uh, Roy Thomas's Doctor Strange was a little more down to Earth six one six, if you will. Um, so yeah, like the very uh, early on in this run, for example, there's an Inferno crossover. Um, oh, here's one. Uh, there's an arc called the uh, Faust Gambit. Uh, which uh, ran through, uh, I think it's issues five through eight, um, which featured, uh, yeah, it was the first appearance of Mephisto's daughter, Mephista, who has not <gasps> been seen much since. But it was, it's, it's a battle, like a, an infernal turf war being waged on Earth, of course, neutral territory, right. between Mephisto and Satanish, two heavy hitters in the Marvel underworld. Uh, so that's one, the sort of cool thing that uh, Roy Thomas thinks of to do, taking uh, existing concepts and throwing them together. Yes. Which does so well. If you're presuming that these uh, characters exist in a shared universe, this is the sort of thing that would inevitably happen sooner or later. And leave it to Roy Thomas to make it happen. Uh, we're introduced to uh, Doctor Strange's brother, uh, Victor Strange, uh, who uh, comes down with a bad case of vampirism and becomes the second Baron Blood. Ugh. Same costume as the guy from The Invaders and everything. Um, we get wrapped up in the Acts of Vengeance crossover, which is a big fa- uh, a favorite of my, our friend Matt's. Oh, yes. Uh, We've got the bound edition over there. Yeah, we're looking right at it. It's on the shelf. So issue number 11, uh, the Hobgoblin shows up, and this is an important part of Spider-Man continuity. Now, is this the demonic Hobgoblin? Yes, it is. Okay. This is right after he got himself mixed up. This is during Inferno. He got mixed up with the demon the Nastia. Jason Massendale. Right. Jason Lantern Yes, he, yeah. right. He, he had just become the Hobgoblin. Shortly before that, he was desperate for the power that the original Green Goblin and Hobgoblin had had. He couldn't find the formula, the goblin Strength formula, formula yeah. so he made a deal with the demon Nastir, who gave him demonic power, but also turned him into a, a demon himself. Uh, he was desperate for help and came to Doctor Strange, and Doctor Strange wasn't able to do much for him, so he gave him a mystic placebo of sorts, which uh, <laughs> made it rendered him incapable of perceiving his own demonic nature. He thought he was still human after Doctor Strange got through with him, but he was still walking around with this hideous reptilian... Yeah, as a huge fan of the original Hobgoblin, I was never a big fan of the also-ran Massendale Hobgoblin. It just never really worked for me. Well, they killed him eventually. Yes, they did. (laughs) No worries there. And then Doctor Strange also went up against the Enchantress in number 12 and uh, a Roy Thomas creation, Archon the Imperium, Ah, in number 13. He goes back to the Avengers in the Silver Age, doesn't he? Yes, yes, when Roy Thomas was writing that book. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Oh, oh, yeah, there's a... One issue, interesting uh, legal note here, in issue number 15, when uh, Victor Strange first becomes uh, Baron Blood, um, there's a photo of sort of a collage between artwork and photo cover on that issue. And apparently uh, the the photo used for that cover was taken from uh, the cover of an Amy Grant album. Uh Uh-oh. And Amy Grant had not been asked for permission to do that. She sued Marvel and actually won some kind of damages for it. Wow. So it's, it's more of an extra textual thing than having to do with the, the material itself. Um, is, she number, Grant, uh, is, she, is she like a Christian-based musician? Uh, she is. Yeah, Maybe she, she didn't like her uh, image appearing on a book having to do with uh, the supernatural forces. <laughs> I'm quite sure she didn't. <laughs> yeah, She started out as kind of a country crossover yeah. star. But, uh, but yeah, her, her work became pretty much uh, straightforwardly Christian music yeah. after a while. But yeah, I can understand. You're exactly right, Chris. Yeah. She would have objected to that in the strongest possible terms. Uh, let's see, uh, Brother Voodoo was there for uh, a couple of issues, in issues 16 and 17, I think. Uh, Gene Colan showed up to do some guest uh, art at number 19. Favorite, uh, favorite co- uh, collaborator with Roy Thomas. 
let's see, there was a four-part uh, Dormammu story called The Dark Wars in numbers 21 through 24. Uh, that Jack Russell showed up. Uh, so Werewolf by Night. Really just kind of going through all the different forms yep. of mysticism in the Marvel Universe, all the different supernatural beings and werewolves, naturally. So a little backup story about lycanthropy in the Marvel Universe was provided in the Tales of the Vishanti backup. Uh, there were quite a few uh, Infinity crossovers in the Doctor Strange title. Much to your uh, happiness, no yes, doubt. Yes, to my delight, yes. Uh, that's how I first came to the Doctor Strange book, because Roy Thomas was always one to play ball in these uh, universe-wide crossovers. Yes. His All-Star Squadron probably had more Crisis on Infinite Earths crossovers than any other DC book at that time. And I think his Doctor Strange series collectively had more crossovers with the Infinity Gauntlet and Infinity War events than yes. any other single book. Uh, Quasar by Mark Grunewald might have been a close second. But, yeah. Uh, then there was a story at about the same time in which he introduced, the, uh, Thomas introduced the Fear Lords, which is a group of uh, um, menacing entities who fed on the fear of humankind. So Nightmare, of course, was a part of that of assemblage. Uh, beings like uh, the Dweller in Darkness, uh, Kalaku the Fear Eater... <laughs> Even that uh, Scarecrow character from, uh, was a Doorway to Nightmare, I think? He didn't make very many appearances. He was in, um, oh, it wasn't Doorway more... to Nightmare is a DC book. I think that's the book that uh, Madame Xanadu appeared in. I th- yeah, he you're right. He was in Dead of Night. Okay. Yeah, one of the, one of the Marvel sort of house titles of the, the Bronze Age. I don't think it was around that long, though, the title. It certainly wasn't, but yeah. long enough for Roy Thomas to notice. Excellent. So he had this group of these fear-based characters. And uh, Kieran Gillen, in his uh, Journey into Mystery run, brought those characters back and uh, used them quite well, I thought. So, yeah, that's that's one of my uh, sort of uh, obscure, eccentric favorite villain groups. Um, When we get into the uh, Infinity War crossovers, uh, there's a couple of issues, number 46 and 47, where Doctor Strange was part of a jam group of uh, Marvel Universe magicians called (laughs) Strange Bedfellows, they were called. So it's Doctor Strange and Doctor Druid side yes. by side once again. Scarlet Witch and her uh, her mentor Agatha Harkness, and uh, also Shaman of Alpha, of Alpha Flight. Ah. And uh, was it at this time that uh, they were talking about how that uh, blue mask made you think of doppelgangers? Yes. Um, this is one of the many nods to that blue mask that we see. Um, the Counter Earth Doctor Strange shows up. The High Evolutionary's Earth. Right. Yes. Yes, and uh, he is uh, invading. Uh, he does a home invasion of the Sanctum Sanctorum. I, I don't remember. I think he's looking for one of Doctor Strange's, uh, maybe the Orb of Agamotto or something. I forget his motives exactly. He's kind of insane. Uh, this, and he shows up on uh, regular Earth, and he's decided to affect Doctor Strange's blue mask to help distinguish him from Doctor Strange himself. Huh? He calls himself the Necromancer. So that's a fun little story within the overarching story of the Infinity War. Um, then we get to issue number 50, uh, which was a, that, that was written by Len Kaminsky. It was kind of a little break in Roy Thomas's mm-hmm. run and it, it, it co-starred his old Defenders colleagues. And, uh, it was about that, it was number 49 and 50 where Dr. Strange, uh, has a falling out with the Vishanti. Uh, for years he's counted on the Vishanti to give him additional power to be his, uh, patrons and, um, mystical backers, but, uh, they're, they're, they call his debt in issue number 49, and they expect him to come to another dimension and uh, help them out in a mystic conflict. I think it might even be the dark dimension, come to think of it. Uh, but the, the, the catch is he has to come and help them in this uh, battle against the forces of evil for about 500 Earth years. And Doctor Strange just doesn't think he can make that kind of a commitment of time. So, <laughs> uh, And at that point, the Vishanti pull their support. So Doctor Strange is kind of at... Uh, 
lower level he's of power mystical sponsors. than he's been for yeah. years. Yeah, he does have to kind of cast a wider net yeah. after that, and different writers come up with different ways to get him around that until the inevitable reconciliation of course. with Vishanti comes much later on. Um, so then uh, we get to issue number 60. This is where things kind of start to go downhill in a big hurry. Uh, issue number 60 is when Dr. Strange... Thomas is off the book at this Oh, point. yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. It's Thomas's last issue. Uh, it's sometime between issues number 50 and 60. There's some fill-ins by uh, Jeff Isherwood, who was also the penciler of the book for a time. We're introduced to a character called Killian. He was a part of that new character series of annuals that Marvel did yes. in 1993. Mm-hmm. Well, he, was, he was like this Celtic mage... Uh, he's uh, well. He's kind of like a, a young man. He's in his twenties. He's an Irish American, and he discovers that he's got uh, the blood of the druids in him, and he can uh, call upon Celtic deities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to remember their names: uh, Terranus Morrigan and Kernunos. I think their names <laughs> were. Only Merg. Remember that, ladies and gentlemen. I'm in awe. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the awe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he, he all but took over the title during those few issues when Jeff Isherwood was writing because he created the character mm-hmm. and wanted him to take center stage. But then he was pushed out. And in number 60, right, this is when Doctor Strange was brought under the, uh, the aegis of the newly created Midnight, Midnight Suns, Suns yeah. imprint. So this was that's, the that smacked of the excesses of the nineties. Oh, anyway. in a big way. Yeah. yeah. So the, there was this huge sprawling, one of several huge sprawling crossovers that Marvel did uh, within a certain families of titles to uh, really um, open the uh, Midnight Suns imprint with a bang. The Siege of Darkness crossover. To this day, I'm not sure what the heck the whole thing was about. It had something to do with different supernatural characters, you know, um, uh, Blade and Ghost Rider and Morbius. And so on, uh, uh, going up against the Lilian, who are the the spawn of the Night Mother Lilith, uh, who had. Uh, I'm not sure if this is the same Lilith that was Dracula's daughter. I think this is a different character. I'm not sure. I think she's like this primordial demoness, mm. you know, who is uh, supposedly, in some apocryphal biblical accounts, uh, the first mate that God created for Adam. Well, actually, in, in the in the 80s Doctor Strange in Volume Two, when they when he uses the Montesi form to wipe out all the vampires, they show Lilith dying. Hmm. Not that it doesn't mean anything, of course, in no. comics, but... I don't think it was that Lilith anyway. Yeah, yeah this is going to be a different Lilith and her many, many demon-spawned children. And uh, so it takes all these different supernatural ass-kickers to come together. And, <laughs> and this story goes on forever. So uh, number 60 of Doctor Strange, it was a um, new creative team of David Quinn, uh, who had been known for an indie book called Faust prior I've to heard that. of it, sure. Yeah, and he'd uh, sort of sort of clawing his way up through the uh, echelons of uh, comics writing. He'd done something for Malibu, I think, and uh, and he comes on to Doctor Strange, edition number 60. Melvin Ruby was the artist, and uh, the colors were by her- Heroic Age Separations. And I remember uh, thinking yes, how I remember them. gorgeous I thought that artwork was when I saw that first issue. Um, so in that issue, uh, the Lilin are running rampant, and uh, Doctor Strange is uh, trying to join the other Midnight Suns in the... Uh, containing the damage one of their number a character called uh, Sister Nil and she's kind of this uh, quasi-vampiric demoness she's not really evil she's just kind of scatterbrained and not Mm -hmm. completely in control of her impulses Uh, she ends up killing Wong's love interest Imei and and because Doctor Strange wasn't able to save her life Doctor Strange was distracted elsewhere Wong blames him for Imei's death and he leaves immediately so He's, he's off the stage for a while. Um, and then in the very next issue, number 61, Doctor Strange, you know, the, it, it goes... So uh, so you see, this this was the uh, part five. Number 60 was uh, 
No, it was part seven of the Siege of Darkness crossover. By the next issue, we're already up to part 15. <gasps> so that tells you just how out of control that crossover yes. was. Uh, but in the midst of that, in number, part, number 61 of Doctor Strange, um, the, the, a character called Salome is introduced. And she's this uh, winged, gray-skinned demoness. Kind of looks like something out of Disney's Gargoyles. Okay. And she becomes like the main antagonist of the Doctor Strange series for a while. She's got a cult of followers. Now, did you find at this point the book was going downhill? It was because it was it was going in an interesting new direction, yes. but I was finding it difficult to understand what was going on. And, and this is we're talking 1993, I think. Uh, yes, uh, the the end of 1993, like fall of 1993. And I the was, book ends in 1996. Yeah, so I, I was 14 years old. Well, now, have you read them since then? Um, I was. Uh, I took a little bit of time this afternoon, Chris, yeah. and it is to my lasting regret that I don't have as much time to do like first-hand primary source research for this stuff when we do them over the summer yeah. because uh, I'm separated by state boundaries right. from my collection of right. comics. But I was able to look at a couple of issues of this run. What this was your impression as an adult? David Quinn, it? that it was just as confusing as I remembered okay. and even more pretentious than I remembered. Okay. Uh, this, it, it, it's inscrutable writing. It, it, it's sort of... Uh, a house style that would have been semi-comfortable at Vertigo at the time, except it wouldn't have come up to Vertigo's artistic standards okay. of the early 90s. Uh, yeah, so it's a cross between the image style of writing and the Vertigo style of writing. Well, let, let's put it that way. Um, so yes, this, it's, it's, it's the kind of sorcerous storytelling that adds a K to the end of the word magic. I understand. Ugh. I understand I got what you're saying. no time for that. <laughs> But so anyway, Salome shows up, and she becomes like the the, the, the dominant evil force of the book for quite some time. She uh, badly whips Doctor Strange when she shows up at issue number 61. This is in the middle of all this uh, Siege of Darkness mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, she basically just kind of vanquishes him. He disappears, actually, and uh, none of the other Midnight Suns know what's become of him. They, they're angry at him because they're trying to fight back the Lilin, and Doctor Strange is suddenly not there to help. Right. Salome then goes on her way and uh, organizes her cult, getting ready to you know, do whatever devilry she has in mind. And the very next issue, um, a couple of new characters pop up. They're called the Strangers. Okay. <laughs> and uh, they appear to be it, – it's kind of like what happened with Superman in the wake of his death in yes, the early 90s. I gotcha. yep. He dies and these uh, four pretenders to the role show up, you know, Superboy, Steel, and so forth. Uh, these two new characters come around. Um, one of them is uh, called Dr. Vincent Stevens, and he's basically human, shows a few uh, flashes of mystical skill. He's uh, like the number one psychiatric consultant in <laughs> New York City, coming out of nowhere. And he also <laughs> co-owns a nightclub called The Tempo. Of course which... he does. <laughs> so he's kind of a hedonist, and he yeah. uses his, his mystical powers to get women to have sex with him as as much as for any other purpose. <gasps> and then there's also a being called Strange. He wears a head mask, kind of similar to the classic blue head yeah. mask, but it's that you see no facial features except the eyes. It's white and it's got like this black patch on the front of it. It kind of looks like the symbol on Ghost Rider's motorcycle, actually. Mm -hmm. And he has these gloves, these long white gloves with these big white spines that extend past his elbow. And there are these big green jewels on the backs of the hands and got a, kind of a tattered black version of the Cloak of Levitation. And he speaks in these very tattered-edged <laughs> word balloons with lots of ellipses. And I thought this was cool as hell when I was 14. You're 14, sure. And I didn't know what the deal was with this. He was called simply Strange. And uh, he uh, was uh, clearly inhuman. He referred to human beings as mammals. Uh, <laughs> 
which I thought was a nice touch. And he's just going around uh, very soundly whipping the asses and sometimes killing mystical uh, practitioners he encounters. Uh, in issue number 62, he goes up against Dr. Doom and wrestles him for this magic artifact he's trying to get. He's going around gathering up all the artifacts right. of Earth magic with a K, that he can find. And he actually uh, bests Doctor Strange in a magical duel for this uh, Ouroboros. Best he... Doctor Doom or Doctor Strange? Doctor Doom. Okay. Because Doctor Strange himself is nowhere to be found at this right. point. Just these two um, doppelgangers of his, which we later learn are uh, kind of like Jungian shadows of Doctor Strange, whom he created right after his battle with Salome uh, to be kind of like decoys and also agents of his in the material world while he... Uh, re rebuilds his strength uh, for this big battle royale he's going to have, or battle royal he's going to have with Salome eventually. So he sent he creates these eth etheric duplicates. <laughs> this is A E T H E R I C. This is uh, magical clones. Yes. Uh, but uh, th th that that's the the pretentious term that David Quinn gives to these. Etheric is used in like every single issue. He's very proud of himself for knowing that word apparently. Um, <laughs> Or making that word up, as the case may be. Um, but, yeah, so for about a year this goes on. Um, I think uh, the, the, it comes to a head right around Doctor Strange number 75. Mm -hmm. where, uh, pretty soon after these strangers appear, we, the readers, are privy to the fact that the real Doctor Strange has gone into hiding. Uh, he's given himself a George Clooney makeover, shaved his head and his, uh, <laughs> his mustache. He just has this very close-cropped uh, grayish hair and stubble. Um, and he's um, preparing for this battle with Salome, which, of course, he fights and wins. Um, not before Salome uh, gets to the two strangers and convinces them that their creator, Doctor Strange, is, uh, does not have their best interests at heart and they should turn against him. Eventually, Strange is able to uh, win them back to his own side. He merges the two of them together into a new being called Paradox, and he sends them off to the Dark Dimension to offer the uh, long-promised help to Clea and her revolutionaries in the Dark Dimension. So Clea does appear in this volume, then? Yes. Okay. Actually, uh, the first time we see Dr. Vincent Stevens, one of the two strangers, he's adopting a white cat he finds in an alley, and he's naming her Clea. Uh. So her presence is, is definitely felt. Um, but at, by the end of this whole uh, rigmarole that's happening, uh, in, in number 75, uh, Salome's been vanquished, and Doctor Strange has been reborn. So now he's this uh, long-haired, like chin-length, salt-and-pepper-haired hipster wearing flip-top shades. Yeah. And he's, he's been de-aged, you know, so shades of Teen Tony in oh, Iron geez, Man going on. It, it's, it's bad, yeah. So he's, he's become a younger man, and he's got this new... He's uh, wearing this... Uh, sort of uh, half-bathrobe, half-trench-coat-looking version of the, uh, the the Cloak of Levitation. And he has a sword now, briefly. Sword of Doctor Strange. Um, so, and it, this so, stuff sounds best forgotten, Mark. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> he wanders around with this uh, really uh, funky, fresh, new Doctor Strange look for five issues. Then, And then, then this is interesting. Warren Ellis comes in. In issue numbers 80 through 82, wow. this is in 1995 now, and uh, he resuscitates Doctor Strange a little bit from what's been done to him. Um, he uh, reveals that Doctor Strange finally did go off and uh, serve some of the time, at least, that he promised to the Vishanti fighting uh, mm -hmm. this war in another dimension. He comes back, and he's re-aged back to uh, the age Doctor Strange is supposed to be. Which looks like in his 40s, basically. Yeah. yeah. yeah kind of, he's got the white temples again. Right. He's got a goatee instead of a mustache. Okay. He gets uh, an, yet another version of his costume where he's got this big, fancy gold brocade thing on his front. Mm -hmm. um, and he's, he's wearing, again, a version of the uh, Cloak of Levitation that looks a little bit more like a, a, a cape, but is really actually a, a sleeved coat or, or duster. 
something like like a Mac, <laughs> something like a Macintosh. Uh, and he is uh, under uh, Warren Ellis's uh, writing. He 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 learns chaos magic, just enhancing his arsenal a little bit. So apparently he's uh, not entirely reconciled with the Vashanti yet. He's still looking for alternate sources yes. of magic. Uh, so that goes on for uh, three issues, and Mark Buckingham is actually doing the artwork oh, wow. at this time. And uh, he continues to do the artwork when J.M. Demetrius comes on at uh, issue number uh, eight, numbers 84 through 90. The end of the series, then. Right, yeah. right through to the end of the series. And it's during that time where we learn that uh, Baron Mordo is dying of, of all things. No uh, deal with the devil uh, or a you know, bad magical bargain. or like, He wasn't scorched by the brazier of... Uh, <laughs> Or brazier of Balthac or anything like that, but uh, he's uh, he, he died of cancer. So it's kind of a your Captain Marvel style, right. tragically and ironically mundane death for him. But it's at that point that we're introduced to uh, his daughter, Baroness Astrid Mordo. That was in issue number eighty-six, and as we know, uh, the uh, final issue is number ninety, and that ends the story of Victoria Montesi, uh, who had been a member of the uh, Darkhold Redeemers, yes. who had their own. Midnight Sun series for a time, and she was kind of a, a friend of Doctor Strange. But uh, in the end, we and she's pregnant with Thon, like she was going she's to be the, the vessel one. of Thon. Yes, yeah. uh, and I think eventually we learn that she's not even really a person, but uh, sort of a homunculus created by Darkhold magic. Uh, but Doctor, she was still Doctor Strange's friend. Right. So uh, rather than destroying her, he puts her into some kind of uh, permanent magical stasis, slips her away into top, uh, cold storage in another dimension where top men will look after her and the embryonic Thon for all eternity to come. And that is the note on which J.M. DeMatteis chooses to close up shop okay. on the third volume of Doctor Strange in 1996. Murd. Masterful. Now, you've inspired me to seek out those Roy Thomas issues. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I'll be fighting you for them. Well... We'll, we'll get them together. All right, good, good. If you have any extras, you know where I'll, to. I'll start looking on Sunday. Where to punt them? Now, since while we're talking of yeah, the '90s, though, please, since, please. So I'm, I'm sort of taking it upon myself. This is my. Uh, I respect that, sir. This is my. Uh, the, the magic always comes with a price, as you know, and my <laughs> price is to have read comics in the '90s. <laughs> Uh, we, we're talking about Doctor Strange here. We need to mention the Secret Defenders series. Which is, I know you're, is a favorite of yours. Yep, which, uh, of which Doctor Strange was the administrator for the first 11 issues of its uh, two-year run. And uh, the deal there was that Doctor Strange would gather together a, uh, a pro-tem, uh, odd hoax team of superheroes uh, to deal with certain threats that his mystic senses have made him aware of. And uh, he uses a deck of magic tarot cards to select these teams of heroes, which usually turn out, co- not so coincidentally, to be uh, big-selling characters. There would always be a Spider-Man or a Punisher or a Ghost Rider in his little of teams course. that he'd put together. Um, and so Doctor Strange was the one who would bring these teams of characters together to fight whatever threat was, was Didn't Roy Thomas write part of that He series? did, okay. yes. He, he wrote the first uh, eight or ten issues. And I think when we did Back to the Bins, were we talking about an issue with Thanos that you enjoyed? Right, yes, yeah, okay. that, number That's 12. Ron, yeah. yeah, Ron Mars was the writer yeah. there and Tom Grinberg, the artist. Um, and eventually Doctor Strange would pass on um, the administration of this group to Doctor Druid. So he became the central character. Eventually, Tom Brevoort became the, the co-writer of the series and drove it right into the ground. Because <gasps> he he went, got away from the central premise of bringing in a rotating team of different Marvel Universe characters put together for the purpose, which is a, a concept that's been brought back a couple of times over the years, n- just not with the title Secret right. Defenders. Uh, but then Tom Brevoort uh, and his uh, collaborators decided instead it would be about... Dr. Druid and a character called Shadow Woman and another character called Cadaver, who is this magic zombie who wielded a sword made of his own bones. And and these were the the, the core cast of the book. 
Yeah, they, they almost entirely forgot about bringing in other Marvel Universe characters. I'm sure it died a quick death. It did, and, and deservedly so. But uh, Doctor Strange was a big part of Secret Div- Defenders at the start. Now, since then, before we move on, you know, to, to the more recent stuff like the Oath, did he have any really major appearances? Um, well, let's see. Um, he, didn't have, he didn't have his own book at this point. No, he didn't. Uh, actually, that, that was the last time he had his own ongoing yeah. series. It was 1996, yeah. as we've said. Um, but many series. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say there was one called Doctor Strange, The Flight of Bones. I've never even read that one. Uh, yeah, that was uh, – it was written by Dan Jolly. Um, the art uh, was – well, he, he, the first – see, that's the thing. It's, it's one of these miniseries that uh, the artist couldn't finish. It's always kind of jarring when a miniseries is done in two different yes. styles. Um, so it was four issues. It was in 1999, and uh, the artwork was by Tony Harris. Oh, he did the master. first two issues. And I, I, I got to find those just to see his artwork on Doctor Strange. Yep, but uh, he his I guess his schedule with uh, Starman was too demanding and couldn't uh, couldn't finish it up. So uh, the second two issues were drawn by Paul Chadwick of Concrete. Great artist, but a very different style. So that'd be a very jarring <laughs> contrast, at least. Yeah, it was a Marvel Knights miniseries, okay. you see. So that, that imprint was up and running by 1999. So, um, And uh, I remember reading an interview from Dan Jolly who said they had this fantastic – he and Tony Harris had the fantastic idea to turn the Cloak of Levitation into more of a trench coat. Yeah. Never mind that this had been done before like three years ago. Yeah. So uh, I don't even remember what the series I was about. I remember in the honest. 2000s, uh, Straczynski did a miniseries entitled Strange, which mm. is sort of a – it's like a reimagining of Doctor Strange's origin and so mm. forth. Yeah, I think I stayed away from that one. It, I read it, solid, but nothing. Not not. I wouldn't consider it essential reading. The Oath, on the other hand. Ah, well, one more thing before please, we sir, get into please, that. Please. Um, yeah, he was part of the Kurt Music and Eric Larson Defenders as well. That's the fun story where they were all forced to come together, right? Right. The very first foe the Defenders ever fought, Yandroth, who, as we said, was a Doctor Strange foe first, uh, he put a mystic curse on them that forced them to come together every time uh, some kind of... And they didn't want anyone... They they couldn't stand each other, essentially. That was part of the humor of that story. Mm -hmm. I remember reading that. The Defenders, we should give their due in a whole other episode. Right. That's that's a wonderful history in itself. But, uh, yeah, Strange was always a, a key member of the Defenders for much oh, yes. of their run. Well, yeah, much of it. Yeah, not all yeah. of it. Yeah, like Volume 1, he was in for the first four years, and then things started getting weird. We'd get characters like uh, Gargoyle. And, well, that's uh, when we get the latter 1980s stuff. Uh, but that, that's fun in its own way, too. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, it eventually became the new Defenders. Yes. So. That, that warned you right there that you're getting a, like a, a different well, that, that part of the original X-Men. Different the formula, a different yeah. flavor. What else do you have in that legendary uh, legal, yellow legal pad? <laughs> um, that's about all I've got for the 90s okay. and 2000s. So, yeah, by all means, let's uh, jump to 2006. Well, the the oath – th- the reason why I wanted to – and I'm, Murd, thank you for reading it. Um, now, thank you for providing oh, it for me to read. My pleasure, sir. It's – in thinking about the movie coming out next year – and I mentioned how they're going to reprint at least the first issue for Halloween Fest this coming Halloween for uh, for the free comic book day. That's part of that. I think the oath, if they want to, if you want to get people into Doctor Strange, as, as people are going to get interested in the movie naturally, I think it's the most accessible and sort of the most perfectly accessible Doctor Strange sort of self-contained story to read, because first of all, it's by Brian K. Vaughan, and many listeners know my feelings on him. I think he is he is the greatest writer in comics today. Um, and he can handle any genre. 
And he takes Doctor Strange, and as Murd mentioned, they hadn't done much with the character in this time period in the 2000s. There was the Straczynski miniseries. I forgot which year that was. It was somewhere in the 2000s. Yeah, um, yeah things had gotten a little too dark and edgy yeah, but, at the House not, of Ideas. Not, not that much. And what's wonderful about this story, first of all, the Marcus Martin art is beautiful. Um, and it, it very much takes you into a world where Doctor Strange clearly is, is, is an established, existing character, but he writes it in such a way that's very accessible for a new reader. And what I loved about the story, and I won't spoil every element of it, but is that he makes Doctor Stephen Strange a very relatable figure. Because the, sometimes in some eras of Doctor Strange, his voice is – it's very kind of the stereotypical sorcerer voice. Not always, but sometimes. This Doctor Strange is very human. He he really explores, I think, more better, more effort than anyone, his relationship with Wong and how important Wong is to him, not only as a servant, but as in many ways his only lasting friendship, essentially. And you really get, you know, they, they show you all the wonderful powers. The costume is kind of a wonderful hybrid of like his tunic and cloak. He's just kind of wearing normal pants, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's missing the sash belt that yeah. he sometimes has. And uh, he really explores the dynamic of their friendship, which is which is wonderfully done. And also, the Strange's past, and he, you know, his, his nemesis in the story is someone he brings from his past uh, into into the forefront. And of course, they also explore wonderfully the role of night nurse in the Marvel universe. It's a wonderful <laughs> opening scene where you're in the waiting room. <laughs> yes, the girl from Ipanema is playing over yeah, the PA. Of night versus clinic, and it's I think is it Arachne? Uh, Aranya. Aranya. Yeah, welcome to Marvel in 2006. Yes. Aranya was relevant at that time. Yes, who is really not relevant now as far as I know. And Iron Fist is there. I think he's pulled a hamstring or something like that. <laughs> yeah. He's got a leg up. And Aranya suffered and just, a, a mace wound from the flag smasher. It's freaking Iron Fist. And look, and he goes, yes, I'm Iron Fist. No, I don't know where Power Man is right now. Yeah, we're you a know. team, not a couple. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's, it's Vaughn, okay? And, and it's <laughs> – and just, you know, the story is that Doctor Strange has – because he can – as we mentioned, he can, be, he can be injured as any other human can be. He's been shot uh, by a gun that – the gun that Adolf Hitler used to commit suicide. So it has terrible dark magic surrounding, which is a wonderful touch. And I, you know, the, the whole story is about Night Nurse and Wong and Strange trying to find out who shot him and why. So there's this, this wonderful mystery aspect to it. Uh, but the, the, the crux of the story for me is, is just – how human Strange is rendered in this story, mm. and how important his relationship to Wong is. Right, because they're both uh, well, they're both of their humanity. Yeah, is very and, much and in, in the story, Wong, Wong reveals leaf. that I have a tumor and I'm dying. And Strange is trying to use both his magic. Strange is still a brilliant medical doctor; he just can't really perform surgery, but he's still a brilliant medical doctor trying to find a way to cure Wong. And Wong's like, "Look, you can't, you can't cure me. I'm going to die." And uh, they really ex- – because the Night Nurse character, Bendis revived her uh, when he took on Daredevil and so forth. And Vaughn takes it even further. I mean he really fleshes out this character. And uh, he, she and Strange develop a wonderful dynamic in the story. Hmm. Call each other Holmes and Watson yes, numerous and times. exactly. And uh, there's a humor there. And uh, you know, it's, the story also explores how important Wong and Strange are to each other. And what they're willing to do for each other, and for me, it's it's a Doctor Strange story. If you're interested in the character, I guarantee Marvel's going to put the trade out again with the movie approaching. Oh, no doubt whatsoever. And if you want to, if you want to, sort of get into Doctor Strange, definitely read the Lee Ditko origin and all of that. 
And, and, and the oath also revisits that as well. Oh, yes. Gives us some new details. Yes, introduces it does. a character who is one of the surgeons who worked on Doctor yes. Strange's uh, hands and was unable to completely restore their functionality. Yes. He becomes, uh, I won't say the villain, but uh, sort of an antagonistic yes. presence in this story. And the... And so you read the origin, but read the oath because it's just it's it's a, it's a, again it shows just Vaughn's mastery because he takes a character with a lot of a great deal of complex history, and he just kind of boils it all down to its essence, and he gives you a story that is such it's it's complete and utter Doctor Strange, but it's new at the same time, right? New and, and accessible, and any anybody can read it and, and write you'll read that read that story and you'll 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 understand the basics of Doctor Strange. I think it's it's uh, to me it, it, as far as in terms of the art of the miniseries, it's a masterpiece. What, what's your take on it? Well, well, I, I concur. It's it, it definitely does distill what uh, makes Doctor Strange most interesting as a character, and what potentially could make him even more interesting than he's been in the past. And it brings the whole thing down uh, to an accessible kind of semi-street level. Yes, I mean, that's, that's another uh, plus of Night Nurse's involvement in the story. Yeah. Besides it just being. Nightmares in a comic, yeah. which we, we along enjoy. with Brian Michael Bendis, like to see. Yeah. It's great that there's this uh, physician who treats injured superheroes yeah. in the Marvel Universe New York City. Yeah. It's a great idea, and she gets to come along as, uh, well, like, like field medic for these two uh, badly injured uh, uh, paranormal investigators, yeah. Doctor Strange and Wong. Um, but uh, it's, uh, it, it becomes accessible because, uh, well, it, as you've said, Chris, it lays bare the basic humanity of Doctor Strange and Wong while still keeping them in character oh, almost yes, 100% of the absolutely. time. There is one panel where I think uh, uh, Vaughn falls prey to the usual uh, uh, cardinal sin of Bendis, where he sometimes sacrifices characterization for a laugh, where Wong is... Uh, explaining to Strange how he's made peace with his mortality, and Strange just cuts him off saying, oh, shut up with that Zen crap. That is not something I see Stephen Strange saying to anyone, let alone Wong. Probably not, but one could argue that in his stress and despair over Wong's condition, he just kind of snapped in that sense. But it is a bit out of character normally, yes, I would agree. But Vaughn doesn't commit very many... uh, He's, He's the master any many transgressions of that kind because he, he yeah, the characterization is almost note perfect. I mean, you, you get a sense of who Doctor Strange was before the accident that took the use of his hands. Although it doesn't go much into the retconned backstory that Thomas introduced. Yes. Though. Um, but it shows you uh, the arrogant Doctor Strange that was, and some great dialogue from him. And it shows you the uh, the person that Doctor Strange became, and the person that Doctor Strange is forced to become uh, when faced with uh, the imminent death of his closest friend, and the lengths that he's to which he's willing to go. And also, at the very end, uh, there's a great scene between him and. Uh, uh, we'll call him the antagonist of yes. the piece, where uh, he uh, casts a spell. Well, the, the antagonist casts a spell that cancels out his and Doctor Strange's powers to use magic, and the two of them just duke it out on a rooftop. It's it's, and that's where Wong's training, and they show that in the book that Wong, we forget, has trained Stephen Strange in the martial arts, so he's no, he's again, he's no slouch in physical combat either. So it does bring things down here. I, I, I've been wanting – I haven't owned that trade in years. And when I was in Minneapolis uh, this past summer, I mentioned this in the air. We went to Big Brain Comics, which is a wonderful store, magnificent selection of trade paperbacks. That's its focus. And they had that trade because it's been out of print for some time. I, I grabbed it immediately because I knew we'd be doing a Doctor Strange – I was planning a Doctor Strange spotlight. Is this that, uh, that very copy? That's the copy, yeah. Mm. So it, it, it's out of print. Uh, you, can, you, can probably, you, can, you can probably find the individual issues in bargain bins. 
uh, but guaranteed that they're doing issue one as an HFC Halloween Fest comic. I'm sure they're going to reprint the whole trade. So, you know, as we approach our closing, I think I just want to reemphasize if you want to get into the character, that's I think that's a great place to start. Yep. What, uh, do you have any closing thoughts on uh, Doctor Strange, sir? Oh, well, I was going to say. Oh no, no, no please! About, I don't mean to cut you off. Please. About the oath. Uh, please. Yeah, it's in addition to being a great Doctor Strange story. It's also, well, Brian K. Vaughn. You know, just, just trust him to help get the Marvel universe's head out of its rear end. <laughs> just, it's. I see that shades of the same approach he took to the Hood, actually, the Marvel Max yeah. series that he wrote about. Uh, of a common street uh, criminal who uh, gets his hands on some magic artifacts and starts to become a player in the world of costumed crime in the Marvel Universe. Um, he's able to puncture some of the uh, seriousness of the Marvel Universe and uh, and uh, well, confound some of the expectations. Uh, the antagonist that I keep mentioning, Dr. Nicodemus West, um, one of the main plot points here is that Dr. Strange has found this other-dimensional elixir, uh, which is... Uh, he had to steal from an, uh, a god cure, like... That cures all... Cures cancer, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, he thought it would just be something that would possibly help Wong's condition, but it turns out it cures all human diseases. That's right. Yeah, he, he steals it from an extra-dimensional being called Atkid the Omnipotent. Atkid being Ditko spelled backwards. God, I never caught that. Oh, well done, sir. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is why Adam Murdo is one of is a vital member of Comic Geek Speak. Oh, go on. No one else. I just have an eye for an an enemy. That's <laughs> which is so vital in this kind of in this kind of discussion. Yep. So Bravo, yeah. sir. So yes. Yeah, so he's anyway. This elixir of Atkid uh, has uh, the potential to cure all human diseases, and uh, uh, West wants to report his findings to what he calls the Overlords. And we're all expecting this to be some kind of uh, cabal of uh, over-sorcerers. But it turns out it's just the uh, board of directors of the pharmaceutical company yeah. <laughs> he works for. Well, they, they so can, there is they, this they dimension. They pretty sinister in their own way. Yep. So he's, he's plugging this into a real-world issue, too. You know, the, the, the uh, big farm and uh, their, the, the withholding of treatment of uh, what is well, curable diseases for purely financial reasons. So there's kind of a, an ethical and uh, dimension that... Uh, Brings the story down to a. That's 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 a good point because that's vintage Vaughn. You see that all the time in his books, like Max Machina, for example. Again, that's another reason why he's such such one of the best writers in comics. Mm-hmm. He can he can write a story very much that's about a superhero, but still include those elements that you know take it to another level. Right, because he weaves those two together exactly. He takes this ethical issue and applies it to Doctor Strange yes. here. Does he? Uh, he's put in a position where he has to choose between using this uh, this panacea to cure his friend Wong or uh, using it to cure, well, save billions of lives all over the world, which is... Uh, and we won't tell you what happens. Yeah, but, but Nicodemus uh, West is against him doing this, not just because it will lose billions of dollars for his company, but also because there is actually a defensible ethical reason yes. not to go about doing that. So yeah, there, there's yeah some uh, complexity of uh, theme going on there too, and I, I just love the there are recap pages in this thing too, like yeah, at the beginning of each the chapter, is yeah. Yeah, they they actually incorporate the recap yes, they do. visually into the beginning of each story. They find creative ways to do it, and it, it's not just a big page of uh, information plopped down there because it's a block of text that the editor wrote or one of the interns. You know, it's, it's written by Vaughn pretty clearly and uh, illustrated by Martin, and it's, it's a page from the Book of Vishanti in one of these chapters. It's an, a memo written by Nicodemus West in another, and it's, it, it's just very... It's well-done comics. And I should point out also, in case some listeners aren't aware, or they didn't make the connection, 
Night Nurse appears in the Daredevil Netflix series. They take the Rosario Dawson character. She's really a, she's called Claire Temple, which is Luke Cage's uh, old girlfriend. But they combine that because she's clearly fulfilling the role of Night Nurse essentially. So it's great to see they're using that character now in a multimedia sense as well. And you know, I almost forgot, Murd. If you don't mind, we should mention, in terms of other media, 1978, the Doctor Strange TV movie. Peter Hooten. Peter Hooten. Yeah. Now, you've seen this. I have a, a, a videotape. Of course you do. From the Sci-Fi Channel's uh, Marvel Week Marathon that they used to do. Matt uh, made a tape of those back in the early 90s sometimes and uh, bequeathed it to me when he decided bequeathed. he was... Bequeathed Yes, he did. Luckily, he's still with us. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, the, the, the Matt that watched videotapes is not still with that's us. So that's understood. Because this, until the movie comes out next year, besides some probably some minor animated series appearances as guest stars, this is the only real multimedia in terms of Doctor Strange on like a movie or a television. Um, I, I just got this, like, this morning from a customer, and so I, I just watched clips to get a feel. I can't wait to watch this. It is so 1970s, uh, every element of it. Um, it. It looks immensely fun and absurd all at the same time. Like you've seen it. What's your overall impression of it? I don't um, mind you spoiling things. It, it wasn't all that bad. Yeah. The, uh, the special effects are definitely 70s-ish. Can't wait. Um, yeah, the the ancient one, oh, you're already aware of this. You told me this before. Man. But yeah, yeah. it's, it's uh, whose name is... I don't. I don't know. It's he's definitely not an ancient uh, Tibetan mage. No, but, uh, but yeah. Wong is in there, and uh, they, he wears a three-piece suit I for the whole yeah. time. He justifies uh, his referring to Doctor Strange as master. So they're they're, they're sidestepping some of the uh, more uh, objectionable or offensive yeah. cliches there right off the bat. Um, I think Dormammu is mentioned. I think he's a force in the mm-hmm. background somewhere. But uh, uh, yeah, it would have been nice if it had been. Cleaved a little closer to the comics, but of course this is in 1978. It's the same time when they made the Spider-Man series. Mm-hmm. The Hulk, Incredible Wonder Hulk Woman. was a big thing at that time. Yeah, and in the so, Spider-Man series, and, and if Kevin were here, he'd be waxing rhapsodic yeah. about that. At that time, Fun series, but of course deviates dramatically from yeah. the comics. So. Back then, you were just happy to see your absolutely these comics characters making their way to larger small screen in any form. I remember as I was a little kid when the Spider-Man was on. You know, I was five or six years old. I was enthralled. Uh, and, and now I enjoy it, for, you know, both nostalgically and also just because of the goofiness of it. And, that, and just how it reminds me of the time period, um, right down to the clothes people are wearing. I noticed on the cover of this DVD that this is the game sort of a version of the Doctor Strange costume. It's like he's wearing a turtleneck <laughs> with a lot of chains around his, his neck and a sash and – you know, sort of a wristbands. Uh, does he have the cloak in it, or, or is it not? They don't even go that far. I'm pretty sure he does have a cape or a cloak okay. at some point. Well, I'm looking forward to to, to to watching this in its entirety. So, anything else you want to add before we uh, wind uh, this up? I'm uh, I'm glad that we've done this at the time we've done it, yes. Chris. I mean, it's it's no accident that we're talking about Doctor Strange right now for reasons we've gone into a couple yes. of times already. The movie's coming, but it's it's got me psyched for the magic to return, not only to the big screen but to the but comics. The page. Jason Aaron Chris Pachalo book, which will be coming out, I believe, next month, actually. And uh, you know, it, my goal with these spotlights is obviously to do as many of them as we possibly can. Um, because I, I just consider it an honor to be able to add my little contribution, our contribution to you know, sort of discussing and, and recording Marvel history. Um, but Doctor Strange is a character I've always loved, 
and I've really come to appreciate him more in recent years as I've read more of the back material. Um, and I just think I just think the oath demonstrates just what great inherent potential the concept has. How Lee and Ditko were right on the money with what they created initially, and just how how, how many so many wonderful creators have taken that concept, like Engelhart and Brunner, like Roger Stern, the artist he worked with, like Roy Thomas and Gene Colan and Tom Palmer, and then they they've really again taken a character who is very much in the Marvel universe, but at the same time incorporates all these wonderful elements of 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 mysticism and pop culture of the different areas he's being rendered and uh, seek out the, the arcs we're talking about, seek them out. Uh, I, I really think you're going to enjoy them. I, I would start with the early Lee Ditko and read the oath. It's just a wonderful jumping in to just to get the, the, the fundamentals of the character and then explore all these different runs. We've talked about the artwork alone, Colin, Brunner, Marshall Rogers, Paul Smith, Steve Ditko. I mean, these are all giants who worked on, the character and, and just some just definitive defining artwork for, for the different periods that they're working in. Uh, so we're all looking forward to the film. And again, I think Benedict Cumberbatch is just perfect casting. I cannot wait to hear that sonorous voice, you know, echo some of these incantations. <laughs> and uh, do you want to close with a with an incantation for our audience? Right. <laughs> By the mystic moons of Manipur. This episode of Comic Geek Speak was brought to you by SuperheroStuff.com, where you can go for all of your Superhero Stuff! <laughs> yes, uh, I have Agamotto sold separately. <laughs> but go there now to check out their Halloween costume sale and so much more. All right, uh, if you would uh, like to get in touch with us by email, you may at uh, comicgeekspeak at gmail.com. If you'd like to send us a voicemail, uh, the number is 267-702-6642. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is at comicgeekspeak. Uh, do us a favor and stop by thecomicforums.com to uh, lend your thoughts to this episode and uh, you know, share your own uh, personal experiences and or opinions of Doctor Strange and uh, mention any favorite stories we may have neglected to mention. Um, we'd like to give a special thanks to everyone who's uh, donated uh, financially to the show. We uh, couldn't do the show without you, and we really appreciate it. And we are, as always, uniting the world's mightiest heroes one listener at a time.